Hey, Mike Droppers, good evening and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me on this hot, 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 at least in California or the Southwest, hot, 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 late summer day. Guys, we just set an all-time record for heat here in downtown Sacramento, 114 degrees, beat a previous record of, a, I think, 113, or maybe it was 115 today, 114 in 1925. Uh, we are not built for this kind of heat, dry weather, humid weather, any kind of weather. It's hot. It's warm. And I've got to tell you, I'm excited about this show, not just because it's warm outside, but because campaigns are heating up too. Uh, Labor Day is the official beginning of campaign season, as we call it. And there's a, a marked shift in public opinion as we head into the last 60 days of an election cycle. What I mean by that is... There's now an attention being placed on campaigns where Americans start to focus on politics in a way that they don't ordinarily. Folks like you and I spend a disproportionate amount of our time. Some of us spend all of our time thinking about uh, politics and political races and campaigns and the, and the goings uh, back and forth between the parties, what demographic groups are doing and what it all means. Um, most Americans do not have that sort of focus. As you probably know, you probably as junkies that we are, we probably hang out with and talk with a lot of other folks who do have that kind of attention and focus. Most Americans do not. But something happens on Labor Day. The media's attention, the media's focus, and the spend, in other words, the buying of both sides starts to go through the roof. McConnell, by the way, made a huge uh, $18.5 million buy across six states. We're going to talk about that in a little bit as we talk about the sustainability of the momentum that's moving forward. we got a lot to talk about. This is going to be a really, really good show, guys. And I'm excited because these shows are getting bigger and bigger all the time. A lot of it, I'm under no false illusions, is that same focus. People are, are on social media. They're following the latest um, happenings. They're worried about the state of democracy. So I want to first of all thank all of you newcomers, people who have not been on the Mic Drop show before. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I also want to say, please, by all means, jump into the queue. Get comfortable with this call-in app because I decided to use this platform for all of you. I wanted to make sure that I was getting your questions answered. I know in the 2020 elections, for those of you who um, have been following uh, followed my work with the Lincoln Project, and since my my goal here is to try to be as engaging and as accessible as possible, that is despite every bit of advice I have gotten from absolutely everybody. People are saying don't be as accessible as you are; it's going to get you into trouble. Sometimes it probably has, but the truth of the matter is, nothing feels better to me when I get those comments of people saying. You really help me come to a new understanding of what's going on. You're helping to calm my nerves. You're making things a little bit more. Um, uh, I, I can deal. I can deal a little bit. I can chill. I can sleep at night. And that's that's what I'm trying to do. Okay. Mic drop is a little bit unique. There's a ton of people that are pundits. There's a ton of people on social media and on cable news shows who can prognosticate and talk about numbers. Uh, in a million different ways except for one, and that is understanding how practitioners actually campaign. Most of the people that you are watching, most of the people that you follow on uh, social media are not practitioners, have never run a campaign before. We're going to talk about some of that because there's there's some, some heartburn 
uh, with the Cook Political Report. I've been a little bit critical of the, the Cook Political Report. I'm sure they're fine people, but it's important to put them in perspective. Uh, I don't, I don't want to be um, uh, bad-mouthing anybody, but I do want people to have a clear understanding of who they are and what they do and what they are limited by and what they don't do and why they've been challenged a little bit in the past. So as we're gathering this audience here, I do want to say a couple quick things. The first is, again, this, this app, this call-in app is a little bit new. It's a little bit unique. It's new to me. Uh, be, be patient with me kind of as we walk through this. Please, the purpose here is to get your questions answered. Jump into the queue. You can do that early. Um, questions are a big part of this, especially if you're new to Mic Drop. Questions are a big part of what we do here. I will stay on as long as my voice um, holds on. Um, I'll, I'm going to do my best. I've got some water here, some throat lozenges, and we'll kind of uh, we'll work our way through that. I want to get as many questions answered as possible. Sometimes, because of the growing audience, questions are asked week to week. Trying to do this once a week, I may be doing a little bit more as we get closer to the elections. If you guys are interested in that, just let me know. Send me a message here on the call-in app. Um, but I, I, I do want to make sure that I'm, I'm here. The purpose that I'm here for is to get your questions answered from a from a practitioner's perspective. Okay, a politician's going to answer the questions very differently. A TV talking head is certainly going to answer these questions very differently. A journalist is going to answer these questions very differently. This is one unique place where you can come and hear from a strategist who's doing this and has been doing this for 30 years at the highest level of our system on both sides of the aisle. That's another unique thing um, that I'm actually proud that I get to bring to this table. I've seen Democrats in some of their biggest fights. I've seen Republicans in some of their biggest fights. And the truth of the matter is they are different. They fight different and they bring different, different things to the game. Uh, I will also ask, so if you're, if you're new to mic drop, jump into the queue. You don't have to do it later. You can do it now. You don't have to wait for a certain point. If you've got a question, um, do that, write it down. If you've got multiple questions, I'm cool with that too, as long as nobody else is in the queue. But I'm also really happy to have you bump, uh, bump off and then bump back on towards the end of the queue. Just want to make sure that we're getting as many questions answered as we can. One other quick thing, Mike Droppers, big favor here. On the top of your screen, that little square with the up arrow is the opportunity to share this show with other folks. One of the biggest dynamics that we found was that a lot of people who had been following me for a long time did not even know that the show was happening. Um, I will take some responsibility for that. But in building this community, you guys could be doing me a really, really big favor if you just share that, hit that, tweet that out now or during the conversation. You can give Twitter updates uh, or other social media updates and just drive a bigger audience to the discussion um, that's really helpful for me. It helps me continue the show and it helps spread the word and kind of builds this community, which again is designed to be as safe a place as possible to ask basic questions. Uh, I'm going to do my best to get those answered from my perspective as a practitioner. And let's go ahead and get going. I'm seeing Victor and Alistair in the queue. Hang on, guys. Just be patient a little bit. I'm going to do a quick setup to the topic at hand today, the discussion point that has brought you all here beyond the robust, rich, detailed discussion, beyond looking under the hood of campaigns and understanding the driving dynamics that make the outcomes of candidate campaigns possible. And that is the big question, which is, is the Democratic shift that we have been seeing over the last few weeks sustainable? And so as part of that setup, I want to go through a couple of points that I'm seeing. It's certainly not all of them, but I want you to know what I'm looking for and what I'm looking at. 
because there is some divergent data. We all know that the generic ballot has been moving into a stronger Democratic position. We know that. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in detail. We have seen in the last week and a half Biden's approval numbers start to move into a mid-40s range, down from a low of an average in the low 30s. Okay, guys, and those of you that have been following this show and have been regular listeners or have, have followed me on Politicology or even on Twitter know that I was raising those alarm bells back in the spring, early summer, saying something has to fundamentally adjust because this is going to be an enormous red wave, probably of historic proportions. Now, I've also been very critical of using Biden's approvals as a data metric, and I'm going to talk about that in just a bit because that's extremely important. Just in the way that you can't get all down and depressed and scared and biting your nails down to the nub when Biden's approvals were down in the 30s, and I was saying don't overthink that. It's not good. It's a problem, but it speaks to bigger Democratic problems, which can be reconciled and rectified. You can't be over-elated because Biden's numbers are doing better. There's a big disconnect between what voter approval of the president of the United States and how the party is going to perform in the midterms. This is what Cook Political Report was talking about because this is somewhat anomalous. And we're going to talk about that because I don't think that the anomaly that they're talking about isn't something that a campaign operative would not, wouldn't have recognized many, many, many years in the offing, like 25 years. I don't think it's new data. I just think that it's professional prognosticators, right? People who analyze data, but have never run campaigns and are trying to make predictions. They use the same tools, the same metrics. They see things through the same light and come to the same conclusions. And I think that that's, that's the problem. Okay. So we've got a generic ballot issue we're going to talk about. We've got Biden approvals that we're going to talk about. We've got the right track, wrong track numbers that we're going to talk about, again, as a setup to the sustainability of this shift towards the Democrats. Set that aside for a second. Two other things I'm going to want to talk about, and that is we're no longer going to be talking about movement. Those of you that have been following me and following the ebb and flow of campaigns, know that up until Labor Day, all I'm looking for is movement. I have never been looking for the horse race polls. You guys have heard me say that over and over and over again, and I'm going to keep saying that over and over and over again, and I'll be saying it from the day after the elections in November until Labor Day in 2024 when we're choosing the next president of the United States. It's already upon us. Remember, at the end of the midterms, we're going to immediately start the next presidential campaign cycle. For those of you who felt like maybe we were going to get some downtime and be able to chill out a little bit in this country or in this world and breathe a little bit, nope, 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 nope. We're going to be starting literally the day after the midterms. The spin will start. The presidential campaigns will whip up. And we will be headlong into it. But one thing I will counsel over and over again is the same thing I have been counseling for literally the last 18 months up until Labor Day, which was yesterday. Um, And that is movement is all that I'm looking for. I'm not looking for that anymore. I'm looking for something different. And I'm going to talk about what that is. And then finally, we're going to wrap and talk a little bit more about the tightening up that I'm seeing in Georgia and Nevada a little bit in Pennsylvania, although I'm not worried about Pennsylvania, and then Arizona, which um, I just tweeted out. Arizona is is the most important race statewide. The two races in Arizona are the most important races in the country. Arizona was my backstop in the 2020 elections. Uh, that's where at the Lincoln Project we invested there first. We invested there consistently. We invested there early, 
every roadmap that I had and my team built to 270 included having Arizona as a backstop. I knew we could lose North Carolina and I knew we could lose Florida. I knew we could even get weak in some of the uh, Great Lakes states, but we could not lose Arizona. That was our backstop. That was a state that went for Trump in 2016. We had to bring it into a blue column. We did it. I thought we did it smart. I thought we did it for the right reasons. I think it can be done again, but it's not in the safe place that I would like to see it at, and especially in a state where the governor has as much control over elections as he and or she will have. Um, and, and if we have a Kerry Lake as governor in Arizona heading into the 2024 cycle, I think there's a lot of potential problems, including a constitutional crisis, political violence, and um, a whole lot of chicanery that we could probably do better without. So um, with all of that as a segue and as a lead up, let me talk quickly about the three metrics that have been important to this date. You're going to keep hearing me talk about them, folks, because they are instruments. They're rather crude instruments, and I think they're becoming less predictors, less indicative of the state of races. But these are the three instruments that most people like Dave Wasserman or Amy Walter or Larry Sabato, Steve Kornacki, uh, good, good people, smart people in their own uh, brilliant ways. But none of them have run campaigns. I'm going, to re- keep, I'm going to keep reiterating that, not because that's that's a means necessarily anything. It's just a different perspective. It's like asking a professional quarterback in the Super Bowl who's been in the game and has actually had to make those decisions. That's the difference between somebody who's a political professional and somebody who is you know up in the booth doing color commentary. Doesn't mean that they're not both valuable. Doesn't mean that they're not both exciting parts of the game and the business that we're in, but they're very different perspectives and the approach and the thinking from a practitioner, from a campaign person is fundamentally different than from somebody who's never been on the field. And that's, again, what we're here to talk about. And I'm going to give you my perspectives. I'm not here to predict outcomes, at least not yet. What I am here to do is to tell you how I see the game unfolding before us, the adjustments I think campaigns need to be made, the opportunities, the pockets that are open, and the places where I'm going to start aggressively move the ball down the field, and the same defensively where the potential weaknesses and openings that I've got to protect from let my opponent kind of take advantage of those and run away with the game. So those three data points are the right track, wrong direction. Right track, wrong direction used to be the gold standard of metrics on what we used for what we called change elections. A change election is if you're in the party um, in power and people feel that the country is going in the wrong direction, Katie, bar the door, buckle up your seatbelt. You're going to have a tough election night because the voters are going to come in and throw the bums out. This dynamic, by the way, really began in the modern era in 1992. We called 1992 the year of, of the woman. Maybe uh, curiously, maybe not curiously, it was right after the Clarence Thomas hearings uh, when, um, when um, the accusations were levied against him and a lot of women got really pissed off and there was a record number of women candidates and the female bro- vote broke decidedly Democrat and it voted uh, in higher numbers by a small percentage than it had in the past. In many ways, 1992 uh, could be sort of a preview, a curtain call look at 2022, the same sort of external shock that drives the election uh, in the election year in a way that motivates a voter group uh, in a very unique way. 
Um, and so we'll talk about that in just a second. But 1992 was the first real kind of change election. I remember doing my first congressional campaigns in 1992. Tells you how, how old I am. We did not use the term reelect on any of our signs or any of our commercials. We didn't want anybody knowing we were an incumbent. We didn't use the term congressman. We started saying representative. I was working for an incumbent congressman at the time, running incidentally against a woman in one of the targeted, highest targeted competitive congressional districts in the country. And what I learned in that race was really invaluable. Okay, not the least of which, some of which was about protecting an incumbent in an anti-incumbent year. What's different here, what's different now is 30 years how long has it been? 22 plus, you know, it's, wow, it's been a long time, okay? We've had a lot of races from since 1992. A lot of the people on this call, I'm sure, weren't even born in 1992. Let's just set that aside for a moment. But, but a lot of races that I've done in that time, most of the elections, most of the campaign cycles have been what we could determine change elections. Remember in 1994, for those of you that were aware and watching, Newt Gingrich is swept into power, contract with America, first time in 40 years that the Republicans control the House of Representatives. Can you imagine, can you imagine any one party, Republicans or Democrats, controlling Congress for 40 years straight in this environment? Like, that's crazy. That's a, that is a bygone world. That's not going to happen again. It hasn't obviously happened since, and it's not going to happen probably for the rest of our lifetimes, in large part because of this concept of negative partisanship, which I'm going to get into in explaining the sustainability or lack thereof of, of democratic momentum. But change elections really define a big part of the modern U.S. political era. Voters vote against things. They vote against the party in power. And most parties screw this up. I say most, there's only two. But when the Democrats win, they're like, see, we've got a mandate. We're going to go forward with our agenda and start moving our legislation as much as we can and get everything done because the American people voted for us. What happens two years later? They usually get rejected at the polls and the voters give the Republicans the majority. And what do the Republicans do? The Republicans say, see, the, Republican, the, the voters love us. They gave us the majority. We're going to take our legislative agenda and pass all of it and get this done. And then what happens? Two years later, they get kicked out. What this should tell people, what this should tell even casual observers, is that when a party is voted into power, it's not a mandate for that party. It's a rejection of the other party. And that data point, 25 years, there's a very, if you look at it that way, pull up all the elections since 1994, just to test Mike Madrid's theory here, pull those up and take a look at what I'm saying, okay? No, you will not hear this, by the way, on MSNBC or or CNN. You're not going to hear this from Nate Silver. You're not going to hear this from Wasserman. You're not going to hear this from Sabato. You're not going to hear this from, from any of the pundits. Again, this is from somebody who's been in the trenches in every one of those campaign cycles. And what I'm going to tell you is, more often than not, we were fighting or pushing into change elections. And it wasn't because people loved our party's message. It was because they hated the other party's message. And we have undeniably seen a rise in negative campaigning. 
The attack ad has become an art form in the last three decades in United States politics. It's always been there. It's always been a dirty business, but we're really, 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 really good at it now. And in fact, a lot of campaigns start with a negative campaign. That was something you never did 10, 15 years ago. You always did that bio ad with the guy at the factory, you know, with the hard hats around him and his sleeves rolled up like he's actually, you know, worked with his hands for a living, which is always bullshit. Right Then there's the kids at the park scene and him maybe throwing a football. And then he's sitting at the dining room table chatting with, with women about you know, pocketbook kitchen table issues. You know what I'm talking about. You've all seen millions of those ads and you just kind of roll your eyes when they come out. But that's the bio ad. That's the introducing our candidate ad. And the goal there is to kind of raise name recognition before the negative onslaught. It's a, it's a prophylactic. It's designed to go up with positives before you're going to get attacked. Nowadays, we, you know, nowadays we just start in with the attack ads. And the reason why is because whoever has the highest negatives is going to lose. So we don't even go through the charade anymore. We don't even pretend anymore. That we need to raise our candidates' positives up. We may need to at some point and try, but it's expensive and very difficult to raise a politician's positives up. It's much easier to bring the negatives of your opposition down or raise them rather. Pull him down by raising him or her, pull him or her down by raising negatives up. And that strategy has created, it has conditioned over decades an environment where people are predisposed to the negativity of politicians. You throw in the partisan element and people aren't voting for their own party. They're really being driven by what they're afraid of or what they're angry at in the opposite party. That is called negative partisanship. And it's most pronounced with college-educated voters. That is one of the few swing vote groups that still remains. College-educated voters tend to go right or left depending on the environment. This is the group that voted for Joe Biden in 2020 and voted again and but voted for Republicans down ticket. This is the group that in Virginia voted for Yunkin over McAuliffe on critical race theory. This is the group that is voting for Democrats in Kansas, the New York special, the Nebraska special, and voting in most of these special elections. They're voting in response to Roe Wade. But notice they're not voting for the Democratic Party. They're voting against the extremist group. In Virginia, Yunkin and the Republicans were able to frame the entire debate as a referendum on critical race theory. We don't even hear about it now anymore, right? That seems like 100 years ago. But remember when that campaign was happening, it was like central to absolutely everything. That's good campaigning. It means you're seizing the frame of the entire debate and you're arguing on the high ground, the best possible ground that you can. And that's 90% of a campaign. If you're arguing about my issues, the issues that I'm putting forward, there's a good chance I'm going to win because I'm putting forward the issues that I'm going to win on, which gets us to Dobbs. The saving grace of the Democrats wasn't anything Joe Biden did. If you ask the average American voter to name three of the legislative accomplishments that Joe Biden and the Democrats passed, you're, you're going to maybe get 10% of the American public that can maybe say one of them. That's, that's Twitter talk. 
That's social media. That's cable news stuff. That's going out and talking about all of these accomplishments. That's not where the mood of the electorate is, and that's not the way the average voter thinks. But you tell them that it was Republicans in this court who are getting rid of abortion rights, that's going to catch capture not only people's attention but women's attention specifically. That's what turned the corner. And it's really important to understand that. Let me say it again for people in the back. Okay? The turn of fortunes in the midterms to this point was not a function of anything the Democrats did. It was a function of the Supreme Court. It was the function of a crazy shooter in Uvalde. And you can argue it was also a function of the January 6th hearings and or the FBI raiding Mar-a-Lago. None of that, the exception, of course, of the January 6th hearings, were a function of what the Democrats did. And even with the January 6th hearings, it's really about telling the story of what Donald Trump did. They're not moving anything aspirational forward. They have a made-for-TV committee hearing where they're trying to raise issues about the president, rightfully so, by the way. You'll know where I sit on that. Rightfully so. That's what was driving these negatives. That's what's driving the concern amongst independent voters. I'm going to wrap up with this really quick, and we're going to get into some questions, but let's talk about independent voters in just a second. Because the last Wall Street Journal poll conducted by a guy named Aaron Zittner, and Aaron, by the way, and I are going to be on a panel in um, uh, Fort Worth, uh, Texas Realtors Association. Aaron and I will be on a panel together talking about some of this dynamic. We'll be talking about the Hispanic rightward shift and how it's been um, mitigated by Dobbs, as we we're just talking about Hispanic women shifting 15 points in his poll back to Democrats. Like, wow, that's a, that is a massive shift. It's undoing everything that the Republicans were witnessing incrementally moving forward with this, this rightward shift. It's going to be fascinating to see how the data plays out. But if you're going to be in the Fort Worth area in the next couple of weeks, shoot me a note. Let me see if I can get a couple of people in there. It'd be good to see some friends, some of the mic droppers out there uh, from the Texas area. Don't know that I can, but I'll see what I can do. I'm going to be on the road a lot, guys. I'm going to be on the road a lot. And so you're going to have to be patient with me, too, because our standing meeting for Mic Drop is, is usually Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Um, East Coast time. I've, I've heard people asking, can I push it back to 6 p.m. Pacific time so people getting off of work can listen in and get some of those questions answered. I don't know if 9 is too late East Coast time, but you guys might be used to it. Send me your thoughts on that. Incidentally, you can send me messages here on the app or reach out to me. You guys know how to get a hold of me, but I'm trying to make this as accessible for people as possible. We will find that sweet spot, and we'll get there in just a second. But this nine-point shift amongst independents is everything. It is the whole race. Okay, this is the the lifeline upon which Democrats are staking their fortunes. And if you're listening to the president of the United States, democracy itself. It's why he gave this speech in Independence Hall. It's why he's using the term MAGA Republicans. It's poll tested. It's scaring the hell out of independents. And they are starting to see that shift in that movement. Abortion and insurrection are setting the frame for the midterms, and it's creating an environment where the professional prognosticators are saying, I don't understand 
how the country can be headed in the wrong direction by 75% of voters. Joe Biden's numbers could be in this anemic, weak position, but the Democrats are doing so well in Congress. Like, they're like, they, they, they don't get it. Like, they're, they're scratching their eyeballs out and like, and, 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 and trying to figure out, like, what does this mean? What does this mean? Folks, it's simple. This is not complicated. The answer is so easy and so obvious. It's been there, not just this cycle, but it's been there for 25 years. If you need to go way deep into history, hell, go back just a couple of years ago to 2020, where you had Republicans winning down ticket in the highest turnout election in the history of the country and Joe Biden replacing an incumbent Republican president. People are voting against extremism. It's not that complicated. So I may not like where the country is heading. A lot of you on the call don't like where the country is heading. Doesn't mean you're going to go vote for a Republican. And vice versa, by the way. A lot of Republicans are out there saying, yeah, things are heading in the, in the wrong direction because Joe Biden's the president. But there's nothing that can be done. There's no possible way that I will vote for anybody but a Republican. Like, right, that's the deep partisan trench warfare that we're in. So right direction, wrong track is a crude instrument that just doesn't work anymore. Biden's approval ratings, you remember, for those of you that have been on the show listening, the, the, the gap between Biden, Biden's approvals and the generic ballot have been in the double digits since early spring. Like people disassociated that a long time ago. They weren't comfortable with Biden. They didn't like Biden. But we, abortion gets overturned. Abortion rights get overturned by the Supreme Court. I still may not like Biden, but I'll be damned if I'm going to show up. I'll be damned if I'm going to show up and vote for the Republicans in this environment. Somebody showed me in uh, one of my data members, a team from my data team on the Lincoln Project, sent me a note saying, hey, just read your thread on Twitter talking about this negative partisanship. Most of this polling is showing Biden's approvals among black voters at 65 percent. That means the 35 percent either disapprove or don't care. Do you think 35 percent of African-American voters are going to vote for the Republican? No. That's absurd. They may improve slightly, but by slightly, I mean low single digits. You're not going to have a 15, 20-point shift because they don't like Biden. So it's not as good an indicator as it used to be. So with that long tirade, again, I've got some questions in the queue. I'm not going to uh, keep speechifying too long as long as we've got questions. Do me a favor again, ask you, um, especially new, newer folks, if you could share that we're having this discussion, let's build a good audience. Let's get some robust discussions and sit in for a good chat as we prepare to discuss and understand the environment as we head into the midterm elections. Victor, thank you for your patience. Go ahead and unmute. And you're on. Go ahead and ask away. Victor. No, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, good to be here, Mike. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Uh, and thanks for doing it uh, on a Tuesday because this is a day where I can can join you. Okay. Noted. Uh, uh, yeah. Today. Yeah. Like I said, what I'm going to try to do is I'll try to do this more if you guys want, right? Like I'm not going to, you know, I don't have a need to kind of sit here and kind of do this every day. There's, there's a lot of prep that I put into it. I'm happy to do it if it's helpful. Um, my guess is as we get closer and as things start to shift on a more daily basis, um, and more people start to tune in, I'll do it a couple times a week, three times a week, or, or, and if something major happens, we can do kind of a last minute thing. 
If you guys haven't subscribed to the show, subscribe, because then I can just hit to all the subscribers, invite you as it's happening. You can decide whether or not you want to join in on a late-breaking development. We could talk about how that's going to affect the race. I'm talking too much again. Victor, what's your question? Um, so um, my question is uh, in regards with um, – with how, how do I put this? How things are going, I mean – you uh, you constantly say Democrats are doing better, but we need to be careful with that because, like you said, you think it's still more likely for uh, Republicans to take over the House, right? Yeah, I do. My, I do. My the, like, like the things I see seem to me like it's like Democrats might actually do it, but mm-hmm. I'm careful because because I think you, like you said, said do this for thirty years, so so. So you're probably seeing something that I'm not seeing. Okay. Yeah. So, let, me, let, um, let me talk a little bit about that. Okay. A lot. A lot of the the uh, one of the, the only one of the only things that we have right to predict the future is the past, and the historical yeah. trend line. The historical trend line on midterm elections is very very clear. Yeah, With the exception, I, I think, yeah, I think it was like three times since the Civil War that the the party in power actually won the midterms. I, it's extremely rare. I'm not too sure if that's yeah, the number or not. I mean, 98 was a little bit anomalous because of I the mean, Monica I'm, Lewinsky affair. Yeah. I'm more sure, I'm more sure about two times since World War II. I'm pretty more sure about that than three times since the Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Regardless, it's very rare. Okay. As, especially in a first term, yes. especially in a president's first term. But having, having said that, Having said that, mm-hmm. these are extraordinary times, right? And as a huge baseball stats guy, any baseball stats guy will tell you the data is only true until it's yes. not. And my right? question is, when and, do and we so the know that? Sorry, we don't know it until afterwards, sorry, definitively. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, That's but, okay, Victor. This is why we're here. No. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, but I want to know when. When can we say like, wait? Can we? Can we curse in this? In this show, sure. Yeah, not, not too much. When but can, yeah, <laughs> when, when can we? When can we? When can we say like, "Holy shit!" Democrats might actually do it. They might actually keep control of both chambers. Yeah, you can, can say, say that. You can say that now, but mm-hmm. but <laughs> okay, that's why we're having the show today. But, but, we, but, like, when, but like when it becomes like okay, no Victor, question, like, you, Victor, Victor, there's always a question. Until the votes are counted and it's certified. Okay? Sorry. That's okay. No, that's why we're here. No, you will never know. That's why we that's why people like me do campaigns. There's just you don't know. And you've got to give it everything that you can. What I will say is this there is a chance now that the Democrats will hold both houses. There is a better chance, I'm gonna say 55, 60% chance that they hold or they pick up seats in the Senate. I think it's probably maybe a 35, 40% chance that they hold the house. Okay. Could they, could, could they keep getting stronger? Yes. Could they get weaker? Yes. There is nothing that will tell us definitively until it actually happens. That's why we have elections, right? And I, I know, I know you know that, but I'm, I'm going to say that because it's important. And I'm also going to say this, the fundamentals at this point in time, are moving towards the Democrats. Their position is getting stronger. 
But what I'm also going to say, and this is why I titled the show, is the Democrat shift sustainable. 60 days is a very, very long time. And what I do know is this. The Republican base is starting to get stirred. I think it's going to be exceedingly high turnout on both sides. I think there's going to be very high turnout in this election. And if the environment stays the way that it is now, I, I don't believe there's a blue wave or a red wave. I think it's going to be a hand-to-hand fight, state by state, congressional district by congressional district, that's going to leave us in a very close position regardless of which party controls the Congress. I think that right now is the likeliest scenario. There have been no huge shifts beyond, as I mentioned, that independent shift, which is decisive, and a plus nine position is very strong. And this female demographic is manifesting itself in higher turnout. We're seeing large numbers of new registrations that are breaking in a crazy, crazy, unprecedented way towards women. Okay? But we can't guess at what that means. I mean, we can guess, but it's just that. I can't tell you definitively what that's going to mean. And so when I'm looking at these underpinnings and when I'm looking at the fundamentals, what I'm seeing is decisive, evidence-based, irrefutable evidence that it is moving towards the Democrats. And the question becomes, 60 days out, have they peaked too early? Which is a very real question, by the way, and we can get into that. And, and is it going to be enough? Because the Republicans are going to show up. There's no such thing as a depressed Republican base. It's not like the Democratic base with very wild gyrations. Okay, The Republican base is remarkably consistent, and it's why in the midterm elections when I was doing Republican races, we could count on it. You could put it in the bank. The only question was going to be, can the Democrats get their voters to show up? And then in the off term, the answer was, in the off year, the answer was usually nine times out of ten, no. No, they can't. But, and I'll probably be writing on this topic a little bit, an op-ed piece on this. It's really fascinating. I think we are in an era for probably the next 10, 15, maybe 20 years of very high turnout elections because people are very partisanized. They're aware of the stakes. They are angry and they are scared on both sides. And that is a perfect recipe for very high turnout. I hope that answered your question, Victor. Uh, Yes, yes, it did. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining. If you want to ask another question, go ahead and jump back into the queue. But in the interim, we're going to go ahead and move on to Alistair. Alistair, thank you so much for being patient. You got a question for me. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, I guess my question is uh, when you're looking at news articles about money moving around from state to state and messaging, uh, what does it tell you that – the Republicans are, one, moving money from seats that they need to take, like in Arizona, to states to seats that they need to hold, like in Ohio, and that they are uh, coming back to like their you know, 20, 30-year-old message of crime and uh, immigration and, uh, and the caravans and all that. Those are, those are some really great questions. So let me answer this. I'm always very careful and skeptical about the money questions because they tend to be more journalists trying to find out and tracking what's going on, and then the pundit class sort of speculating on what that means. 
So let me answer it from a practitioner's standpoint. Okay? What this probably means, what this probably means is that decisions were made between major donors, independent efforts, the candidate campaigns themselves on who is going to fund what types and what parts of each program. Mitch McConnell today just reported moving $18 million, okay, in five or six states. You guys probably saw me tweet on this. Arizona, he is spending nothing. That doesn't mean they don't have the money. It doesn't mean they think the race is lost. It could very well mean that Peter Thiel is going to come in and backfill that money and spend his own money. Or there's another Republican organ that will go in and fund and find that money. I have almost never in my adult life seen a competitive federal race go underfunded. It just doesn't happen. There can be money misspent, like you're seeing with Rick Scott, you know, blowing and wasting a ton of money on a fundraising operation. That's absolutely true. You are probably seeing McConnell pissed off right now because his organization is having to backfill some of that money. It is telling that they are spending money in J.D. Vance's race to the same tune as pickup opportunities in Pennsylvania and in Georgia. But all three of those are really in a competitive range, and Ohio shouldn't be in a competitive range. J.D. Vance should be putting that race away. The fact that he's spending there probably means that it's not. Okay, So that is the one kind of big takeaway is, J.D. Vance is still struggling in Ohio. I think he probably ekes it out because Ohio is a pretty Republican state. Okay, It's not as purple as it used to be. This is moving. The trend line for Ohio has been moving Republican for some time. But the fact that McConnell is spending as much there as he is anywhere else on a defend as opposed to a pickup is telling. Okay, but don't, don't, don't try not to read too much into it because, like I said, there is so much money in this business. There is so much money that can come in through so many different ways. There's, that money is not going to be an issue for Republicans or for McConnell. Remember, this is the money on top of all the other money that basically Trump took through the RNC and is using for his legal defense. Trump isn't spending any money. None. He's not spending money to help these guys out. And the Republicans still have enough money. So keep that in mind. But also remember, remember this is very important, Money is not the best indicator of the outcomes of campaigns. It's not. It never has been, by the way. It's an important one, but it's not the most important one. It oftentimes gets that reputation. That's not what's going on. So uh, the money race is interesting, but don't, don't overthink it, Alistair. Don't, don't overthink it. I, I, I pay very little attention to it. I look more for the political intrigue on the fight between Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell and who's leveraging Peter Thiel and the billionaire donors. They're going to have money. They're not running out of money. Fair enough? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. Thanks for joining. Jenny, thank you for being patient. Thank you, Mike. Go ahead. Yeah, you bet. How can I help? What you thinking? Well, I think we're still going to see a red tsunami. But I have been grateful for the polling we've been seeing this past week. I think you're right. It's it's definitely around abortion. Women are motivated. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing a lot of new voters get signed up. So that'll definitely be impactful on many races. But I just think the economy is so bad that um, the left, the Dems, they're really going to feel that. So that's just my gut take on it. 
I'm particularly thrilled with Doug Mastriano, Carrie Lake. I think they're running some fabulous campaigns. I think Fetterman's just like one stroke away from being out of the race. So that's kind of one to watch. But, yeah, um, I, I think I think Mastriano and Lake are – I love the campaigns they're running, and I'm going to tell you why. They personify everything that scares the living shit out of independence. They are the reason why independents are fleeing from the Republican Party in droves. And the more they talk, the more they scare people. The more they scare real people, average people. The more they talk about elections being denied and elections being stolen, the more Mastriano shows up in a Confederate uh, uniform right at the War College, being from a northern state, by the way. This is the type of thing that Mitch McConnell was talking about when he basically seated the Senate and said, we're not going to win because we our candidates are really bad, right? Oh, I think, I think they're great. I love well, Carrie Lake. I, I, I do, so, too. I, I do, so too. She's amazing. Job of her campaign. I wish she no. was governor of Colorado. I wish she had a megaphone and she could speak louder because it's scaring independents away from the Republican Party. I appreciate your opinion, though, and I appreciate you joining us, Jenny. Thanks for coming on to Mic Drop. We're going to move on to Josh. Josh, if you could go ahead and unmute and go ahead and ask your question. Uh, hey, Mike. Um, I have two questions. Is that okay? Yeah, let's do it. So the first one is uh, short. Can you think of um, an instantation in the last, I don't know, three decades or something where one party – uh, gained in the Senate but lost the House because don't they usually just kind of occur in, together when when one party like on the midterms when one party yeah um, I'm trying to think of what happened in '98. I think Republicans lost in both of those because of the overreaction to the Lewinsky case trial. Maybe O two midterms be. Um, O2 was anomalous because that was the Iraq invasion. We were a country at war, and so Bush was able to over over to, to buck the historical trend line there. Um, I don't know. You know, that's a, that's a great question. I, I look. I'm sure that it's happened. If any if anybody out there is googling, check with us. Send us a um, put it in the chat and find out for us. But I, I can't off the top of my head think of of when that happened the last time. Yeah. Um, well, you know. Nothing's normal about politics these days, but uh, so maybe it will happen where the Republicans do keep the House. But my second question is, if Democrats gain in the Senate and Democrats keep the House or perhaps gain the House, uh, I don't think that will deter the mega movement because they're fucking crazy. But what do you think, like the, the other Republicans, like the enablers of the mega movement, like Lindsey Graham and you know, McConnell and those people. But what do you suppose their long game is to do to, to better their odds in 2024? Like, how many fucking times can they go with the mega brand before they just face the reality? It doesn't work. Yeah. Well, look, well, let me say this. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, look the Republican Party is not trying the, – the, the, the base of the party – the base of the party is not concerned about winning elections. They're really hung up on this sort of self-righteous martyrdom. And this is what I experienced when I was the political director, Republican political director of the California Republican Party, is even though there are seriously, deeply flawed candidates 
you hear the bass saying, I love this person. I love them. They keep, they're telling me everything I want to say. But the problem is the things that they're saying are literally scaring independence and open-minded away and the Republican Party shrinks. Republican Party in California has been shrinking for 30 years. And the, if you talk to the average Republican, they're still just as, as batshit going to change. They, 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 they're convinced. It's like a cult. They're convinced that what they're doing is right, and they're convinced, despite math, that they're in the majority. So don't think that the Republican Party is going to adjust. It's going to have to be a massive cleavage. Now, look, there's a chance that Republicans pick up both houses. Okay, and I, it's, it's, a, it's a bigger chance than most people think. It's, it's a very real possibility. There's also a chance that they lose control of both houses, and that's a very real possibility. And here's what I will say, uh, what I say, will say about that. If the Democrats can somehow, somehow, ahistorically win the House or keep control of the House by any margin and keep control of the Senate and or pick up a couple of seats, it will be absolutely devastating to the Republican Party in a way that I cannot articulate because it will force all of the factions. The Kevin McCarthy faction will be will 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 go to war with the Freedom Caucus faction and those two factions will go to war with what I call the QAnon faction, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Lauren Boebert and the batshit crazy caucus, which is going to get bigger, right? These the, this, yeah. this is a three-way split that will vie for power at a time when people will start publicly blaming tr- Whoop. Guys, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you, yeah. I'm sorry. I think Hello? we're probably going to go into a power out. Yeah, can you hear me? We're going to go into a power out. Yeah. Sorry to all you listeners out there. I think California is going to go into a power outage situation here. So we were just given an alert. So um, apologize for the phone interference. Uh, my, my, my point is that the Republican Party, a party that cannot win in the outterm, in the midterm elections, uh, um, despite all of these advantages if they are not able to win, it will be a circular firing score. They will absolutely go to war with each other. Um, we'll start to pull each other apart. Josh, I hope that You're breaking up pretty badly, Mike. Amanda, go ahead and unmute. You guys can hear me now. Yeah, can you hear I me can now? now. You can were you breaking. Yeah, yeah, you were okay. breaking up pretty badly there. Apologize for um, that. Hi. Oh no, no problem. It's it's not on your end. Um, now I'm usually over here with Grant and Scott and sometimes Fred. I'm glad to catch you this time. Um, I like to peruse around on Twitter Spaces, and I came across a space some months back, 100 Republicans in there, and I thought, I'm going to see what's going on. It was 100 disenfranchised Republicans, and that made me think, okay, how do we get these disenfranchised, or how do we get these disenchanted people without disenfranchising them? 
that would be pretty awesome. So how do we uh, uh, say the question again for me now? How do we? How do we? How, how do we? If there were a hundred Republicans in this one Twitter space who listened to me, mm-hmm. how do we? And they were all pretty dis- They were all pretty disenchanted with the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. How do we get them without disenfranchising them at the same time? You know, you're really asking a, a really important question that gets down to whether or not persuasion is a viable option for Republicans. The truth of the matter is, if you had a bunch of Republicans who were genuinely interested in learning more about differences in the party, um, the, one, they probably already would have changed their mind because it, it's already become a, a completely different party than it, than it ever has been. But more, but more importantly, like if 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 insurrection and stealing top secret documents and 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 violating most of our constitutional norms is not enough to persuade you, I don't know what's left. So the real fight, right? The real fight right now, as it stands, is fighting for independence to move away from the Republican Party, because a lot of independents simply believe both parties are equally bad. I mean, I know that's probably shocking for a lot of people, but that's just the truth. They don't pay attention. They're not worried about the the day to day. They think everybody who's who's following politics too closely is is a little wacky, a little bit weird, a little bit extreme themselves. They're just you know going to going to work or school every day, taking the kids uh, to soccer practice afterwards, and trying to put four squares you know on the table. That's the persuadable audience. That's who Joe Biden, by the way, was talking to. That's who he was talking to at Independence Hall. He was saying these are the stakes. And so I, I, I know we've spent a lot of time over the past few years. Trust me, I have spent most of my career trying to identify where the persuadable segments of the, of the Republican electorate are. There, there simply aren't enough left to have a meaningful strategic discussion with folks about actually opening up their eyes and seeing what's going on and moving away from a party that's completely off the rails. What it takes is something like Roe. It takes... It takes actual things happening to change um, fundamentals of the race. Um, and that's what, that's what the Dobbs decision did. That's also what the January 6th committee potentially could do. That's where things like the, 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 the mass shootings where Republicans simply won't vote for um, a, a policy position that 75 or 80 percent of Americans want. Those issues show them to be outside of the mainstream. That's unfortunately what it's going to take. It's not necessarily anything that the Democrats can do to persuade. There's a lot of problems I have. Look, you all know I, I, I'm not a Democrat, okay? But, but if the choice is between Democrats and fascism, that's an easy decision, like all day long. All day long. I, I will not vote for a Republican or anybody who supports the Republican Party at this point until that swamp fever breaks. But if you haven't, after six years, been persuaded to, to, to figure this out, the chances of that are really, really remote. I don't know if that helped answer the question, Amanda. Melissa, you're up. Welcome up. Welcome on stage. Yes. yes uh, we're both Californians and we're, well, and we're both burning up here. Um, I have a very one, t- uh, one question, and it has to do with just Nevada. I want to know your opinion on... You know, Reed has passed away, and I don't know about his machine. And I would like to know your take, your perception of the Latino uh, voters in that state and if the unions who normally would push people to vote 
from the casinos. A lot of the people who work in those unions have been instrumental in in keeping that state uh, in the blue side. And I I would like to know because there's no polling. I'm not seeing any polling there. I think I think and, uh, I think I'm Nevada just- is actually a, a very um, it's in a very precarious place for Democrats. I think it's much more likely to go Republican than any of the contestable seats. And I don't think you're hearing a lot of talk about it. Uh, Nevada has actually been tightening up and moving towards a more Republican position since the Obama years. And a lot of that has had to do with the culinary union in Las Vegas. It is so big. It is so significant. It's overwhelmingly Hispanic, overwhelmingly Latino. That was part of the machine, the political machine that, that Harry Reid built. There was a great, great Newsweek article today by Adrian Carasquillo about the resurrection of that union. It was basically decimated during COVID because it's all service sector and a lot of its members went away and the power of the organizing of that, of that union went away. Um, it, it seems to be back and is, is promising to have some sort of impact in the outcome of the Nevada races. But when I look at like the Hispanic polling numbers for Corte, uh, uh, for, for, for Cortez Masto, uh, she, she's yeah. not doing well. <laughs> like she's not doing well with Hispanic voters. She's got a problem. And if she can't hold them, I don't know who can. You start to see numbers like 40% approval for Trump. I think that the Hispanic rightward shift is, is going to happen next in Nevada. It will probably be mitigated in, in other states because of the abortion issue. But there's something happening in Nevada where that state keeps coming into closer and closer contention for the Republicans. I'm not convinced it stays in a blue column. Yeah, that's that's why I asked yeah. you, because uh, um, people are talking about a bunch of different states. Some of them you just don't know. Some of them might, you know, end up being you know, like Ohio, I wouldn't be surprised if J.D. Vance wins. It's not surprising. But to me, I'm being in California, Nevada is like there's no polling. There's no internal polls being posted. It's like. Yeah, there's not a lot of data. Concerns me. Yeah. Yeah. No, nothing. Yeah. And it's like, do you know why? Because other poll is it. Other polls are coming out like you're seeing them from different states. Yeah. And maybe they're like two weeks old, but with Nevada, it's like June. June is the last time. Is it because they haven't had a primary or something? Uh, it's really, it's really a function of the fact that there isn't a university in uh, Nevada that is polling on a regular basis. That's 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 oh, okay. usually why um, you know, like the Quinnipiac poll is going to be polling. Um, so it it will throw in a few other states surrounding. Um, and- so that they will they will poll and they can do a, a oversamples or they've got the infrastructure built there to do it anyway. Air, uh, Nevada is kind of sitting on its own out there. Um, you 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 don't see as much from Arizona either. Like Georgia, it seems like there's a poll there every other day. Like there's constant polling coming out for Georgia, um, but 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 less so for the western states and the southwestern states. Nevada, though, but the fundamentals for Nevada, they don't look great. I mean, I, 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 they don't look, they don't look no. great. And there should, no, it's very, con- yeah, there, it's very there should be more focus on Nevada because it's a smaller state by population, cheaper by media market. Um, McConnell put up three and a half million. So you're going to start seeing a ton more ads, um, going up there for Laxalt. 
Um, I, I think it's yeah. very, 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 very possible that Cortez Masto loses that seat. And to kind of Josh's question earlier, I think you may see a split decision here. I think you may see Republicans winning in some areas, Democrats winning in some areas, Republicans losing in some House seats, Democrats you know, winning and losing in some House seats. I, I, it's very possible that a lot of the stuff becomes very highly localized based off of the demographics of each district. And if that were the case, it probably puts Nevada in a more Republican position. One last question, and then I'm going to not respond back. What is your opinion of Trafalgar? I don't think it's a, a credible poll at all. Yeah, I don't believe I don't believe Trafalgar is a, a, a credible poll, polling instrument at all. It's like it's like Rasmus and only worse. <laughs> now, now, I mean, they constantly they constantly go. It's a really tight race, and then just before the the, the you know the voting starts, they then revise all yeah. of their. You know, it's like it becomes like a normal yeah. Yeah. poll. And I'm just wondering, do you think that they do this to like skew five thirty eight? Yeah, they feed the Republican right wing narrative. Because all the Republican right-wing websites will will publish the garbage, and and, and these things right. will dramatically over oversample Republican demographics, and these it's always an outlier, right? Trafalgar's like this. It's like how, how what are you talking about? They're like showing Washington State is is going Republican. It's like what are you talking about? And 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 then and then yeah, their last round of polling, they'll come and do a legitimate poll. And and to, to 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 try to maintain credibility to keep doing it again the next cycle. It's a front group. It's a ruse. It shouldn't be included in the polling averages. Well, thank you very much. Stay you bet. cool. Thanks so much, Melissa. Don't let yeah. Don't let the squirrel go, <laughs> go thirsty. I appreciate it. I appreciate that so much. Okay, Thanks buddy. so much. You yeah. got it. Annika, you're up. You're in the queue. How can I help? What's on your mind today? So I've got a question. Um, like, so what can we do? Like donating money? I've been hearing uh, Chuck Roja and you were saying like Democrat hasn't been focusing money on Latino. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we? Uh, I only know one organization, which is uh, Lustro Pack. So I've been donating a little bit there. Uh, is there any other organization that we should help out so that they can target? I think. Latino. Yeah, Latino organizations. There's a, a handful of them out there. The truth of the matter is, um, I, I look. It, I think the most efficient dollars right now, if I were going to write a check today, I would be giving to the Arizona Senate and gubernatorial candidates. And, and the reason why is because, I, as I as I said at the beginning of the show, I think that those are the most important. That's the most important state on the chessboard right now. Because, again, the Republicans have, have, have said, uh, th- they've been saying it for years, they're willing to steal the election. Right? Th- that's what Republicanism is now. It's about stealing elections. They're not trying to win anymore. They're trying to drive the crazy so much that they can get their people hopped up to actually steal races. In Pennsylvania and in Arizona specifically, those governors have a, a, a pretty disproportionate say, Pennsylvania especially. There's basically no secretary of state. The, the governor certifies the elections in Pennsylvania. I, I don't think uh, those are really competitive races, by the way. Pennsylvania is not that competitive. The Democrats are going to win the, the Pennsylvania by going away. They're, they're going to win them by strong numbers. Arizona's tighter than it should be. And that's, that's where I would be focused. There are groups like Chuck Rocha's Nuestro Pack, which is a good outfit. Uh, Mi Familia Vote, 
Kota, which is another one. There's a whole host of these. I haven't seen any operations that I'm particularly impressed with. But the truth of the matter is, I don't think, you know, Democrats shouldn't be focused on Latino turnout right now. They, they still need to be focused on persuasion. Um, I think that's their bigger issue. Um, but it, it's a much closer to Republican lean than most people give it credit for. So I'm not sure if that was helpful or not. Yeah, don't mind later. Maybe you can tweet it because uh, it was breaking down. I can't hear a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I breaking up again? Uh, just now. It's okay now. Yeah, I'll tweet. Uh, not a here's, question. Here's what I'll do. I'll tweet, I'll tweet a number of good Latino organizations that do good work on the ground. I'd be happy to do that. Okay. Not yeah. a question. Just curious. Like, I noticed that a lot of Republicans um, moving out of California mm-hmm. to other states. So quite a bit after 2020, uh, you know, during the COVID. Is that going to affect the race? No. Please. No, we're, we're actually no. we're actually exporting more Democrats now because it's a lot more uh, college-educated white voters, uh, which, are, which have more progressive views. M- most college-educated white voters uh, lean Democrat. We're exporting. Okay, thank you. Exporting a lot more of those. You know, after between 1992, like the end of the Cold War, and up 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 until about the early teens, aughts, you know, early 2000s, California was exporting a ton of Republicans. It was all non-college educated manufacturing defense workers. And when we shut down Boeing and we shut down Lockheed Martin and we shut down all of these huge military manufacturers in Southern California, a lot of these folks just retired and moved to Texas. They moved to Arizona. They moved to Colorado. They moved to Nevada. They turned all of the states around California red, and California became very, very blue. Now what is happening is is a lot of those folks are just dying out. After their retirement, it's been 30 years since they retired, and what is replacing those voters are white, college-educated, high-tech workers in places like Maricopa County and Austin, Texas, and in Las Vegas even, uh, certainly Denver. Um, all of these places that are, are, are upper-middle class have high-tech workers moving to them. They're turning these red states bluer, uh, mainly because California is becoming less and less affordable. Um, but let's go ahead and take Kevin next question in the queue. Kevin. Hi, yeah. Uh, I was just wondering if you could um, uh, just say a few words about how it might play out. I think Schumer uh, and Baldwin are going to bring the uh, same-sex marriage bill up in the Senate this month. I think that um, if they are bringing up the same-sex marriage bill, it's probably very, very good politics because independence... Um, will be motivated again on top of the abortion issue um, to 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 move away from the Republicans, not necessarily to the Democrats, but away from the Republicans. And I keep saying it that way for a very important reason. It's that negative partisanship element. Look, abortion was the first time in 50 years or or living memory where a constitutional right was basically taken away from the American people. It's no joke. You do that with with marriage, and 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 you're going to have 
uh, again, it's not just the LGBTQ vote that they're talking to. They're talking about college-educated white voters. There, there are not enough Republicans without college-educated white voters to, to have a sustainable, viable party. And those voters are motivated by cultural issues. They're not the old country club Republicans from when I was a kid. We used to always talk to those voters. Kid, I mean like 20s, 30s, 40s, running races. I'm an old man now, so I say kid. But when, when I was younger, when I was a younger consultant, the way we talked to college-educated Republicans was through country club issues. We talked about capital gains tax cuts. We talked about deregulation. We talked about smaller government. We talked about being socially progressive but fiscally conservative, right? Now, today, it's all about the culture war. It's like, do you really want to be hanging out with people who are Confederates, right? People who, people who are white supremacists, people who are, who, who are homophobic, people who are, you know, uh, anti-immigrant, who, 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 are, who are just really really the worst angels of the American nature, of our character. And that's what the Republican Party is devolving into. It just is. I, look, I've been, in the, I've been in the party for 30 years. I've seen all of it. It's, just, it's really not debatable anymore, okay? There's a handful of people who will keep saying it's not. It is. It is. There's, I, I, I've been to hundreds of conventions, state conventions, national conventions. I've, I, I know these people, okay? I've seen what it's becoming, most new economy workers, young people who are very comfortable with diversity, want nothing to do with the attack on the LGBTQ community. So it's not about LGBTQ votes. It's actually just another nail in the coffin of who is extreme here. Most Americans support marriage equality. And when Republicans go up opposing it, it reminds voters yet again about who they're deciding between, which party supports rights for people and which party is trying to take them away. So I hope that was helpful. It's a great question, Kevin. Uh, I didn't even know that vote was coming up, but Catherine, you're up on stage. Go ahead and unmute and ask that question. Um, oh. Yep. There you, Hello. there you are, Catherine. How are you? Okay. Thank you. I uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I had a question on these aggregate poll uh-huh. sites. Uh, do they, um, do newer polls, do they weight them more, or are they all weighted the same? I'm not too sure how the weighting is, and it depends on which site that you're looking at. Like I said, it's, there's a real danger in looking too deep into the aggregators. It's why I keep telling, I keep counseling, just look for movement, um, because what you're looking for is movement in key demographics. And, and I was saying that up until this, this point. Look what demographics moved. Women, for sure. Independents, for sure. College-educated whites, for sure. Why was that important? Why was I saying that for months? The reason why I was saying that is because that now is the roadmap for Democrats to win. They're seeing movements in those demographics, and their messaging is going to be where that movement exists. Now look at the Republican side of the aisle. Look at Kevin McCarthy's speech last week. Who was he talking to? He's talking to white, non-college-educated factory workers in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Why? Because there's no movement in the polls towards Republicans. That is, it's all base. That is it. That is their base, and they're going to goose that for as much turnout as they can possibly can. Incidentally, that is a very significant 
portion of the electorate. It's it's very big. It's one of the, if not the biggest demographics. So they're going to lean into that. They're going to lean into it because one, it's all they have. And two, if they can goose turnout the way Trump did in 16 and in 20, it's enough to barely skate by and win elections. Now it's getting harder because that's also the fastest shrinking part of the electorate. A lot of these old guys are just dying out. A lot of them are being replaced by younger, more Latino workers on those factory floors who aren't white supremacists, who aren't waving the Confederate flag, who aren't, you know, you know, talking about Muslim bans and, 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 and are homophobic. So I, I know I'm off topic from your question, but it depends on the aggregator site. My, my counsel here is don't put too much weight, <laughs> weight on, on the waiting just look for movement. Just look for the high, the high okay. quality polls that they rank. They're all different. The sample sizes are obviously going to be a little bit different. The methodologies are a little bit different. Really what they're looking for is weighting questions like the generic ballot because they're really the same questions. Unless each poll asks questions the exact same way, which they do on generic ballot, which they do on presidential approval, they don't go into the aggregator anyway. So I, I wouldn't be too concerned about how heavily they're weighted or not. Just just rely on, on kind of that movement. But but another qualifier now, having said that, Catherine, I don't think movement matters a whole lot anymore. I, I just don't. After Labor Day, and I'm the big guy, big the big the guy whose big thing is saying, well, look for movement, look for movement, look for movement. <laughs> That's what you're doing as a campaign manager. You're looking for movement. You're allowing your campaign to take its own course and figure out what your message is going to be for the demographics that are moving for you. Once you hit Labor Day, you start to spend. You start to spend where that movement was at, and it's going to tell you where your opportunities are. Democrats see opportunities with young people. They see them with women, and they see them with independents. Republicans see it with just base, and that's why I think it's going to be a close election because I think Democrats are getting a break in all the right directions, but I do think Republican turnout will be high, and I think that's going to bring us to about a draw. I just don't see this 60 days out could change in 10 days, could change in 30 days. I don't see this being a wave election either way. What what about Kansas? Yeah. Now, the independent showed yep. up when Roe was on the ballot. If those same independents show up in the general election and vote democratic, do you see do you see um, an earthquake in a red I, state? Is that I I do, but remember you said if they vote democrat most of those people, you know, those Republicans, a lot of Republican women showed up in Kansas and saying, no, I'm, I'm supporting the, the right to an abortion. That doesn't mean that they're going to become Democrats. It doesn't mean that at all. Some might, some will. Uh, so, so a lot of Republican women have just had it and saying, this party is just fucking batshit nuts. I'm done. I'm out. I could put up with insurrection. I could put up with your Confederate flag, you know, Confederate monuments. I could put up with, with you know, your 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 your, your top secret nuclear weapons stealing, you know, vulgarian president. But I'm not going to put up with losing my right to choose. Like that's that's a real thing. How big is it? I don't know. Um, but but what I do know is that not all of that vote is going towards the Democrats. In fact, most of it is not. It will vote for abortion on that one single issue, but it's it, it, it's a lot. I mean, look at the New York special, right? That everybody was saying, 
Republicans going to win by plus five and ends up being a Democrat plus four. Like the polling was nine points off. That's all women. And there's a lot of Republican women who are like, F this. I'm done with these white Republican men telling me what I can do with my body and not. So, uh, look, that's anecdotal right now. We are seeing evidence of it. That shift is very, very, very real. But the reason I wanted to have this episode today was saying, is it sustainable? My gut tells me it probably is, but there isn't enough data to say that quantifiably yet. And there's a long way to go, and the tables could shift away just as quickly as they shifted in this direction. Okay, thank you, Mike. Catherine, thank you for joining. Amanda, I'm going to jump to you in just a second. Just one quick reminder, you're listening to Mike Drop here on the call-in app. This interactive application is designed to allow a greater engagement, give you as much time to ask questions uh, of, of me as your host to kind of help navigate through this midterm election cycle. If you wouldn't mind sharing this with people and letting them know that we're having this discussion, it would go a long way. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see that rectangle with that up arrow. If you hit that button, it will actually plug in the words for you to share on Twitter. Do me a big favor. Do me a solid. Hit that number. Share with it. Let's build this mic drop community. Get a lot of questions answered, asked. People are thinking things that you might not be. Uh, and it's a great, great way to build community. Um, Amanda, I'm going to bring you back up on stage. You got another question? Yeah, I, I, I honestly didn't no. hang oh, up. Oh, I'm really. sorry. No, I... I Oh, no, that's, that's okay. It was my fault. I hit the wrong button with my okay. bad thumb. Um, I'm, I'm actually a Kansas okay. myself. I, I come from a very conservative background, like really conservative. It took a very traumatic incident for me to change my mind. It was 9-11 yeah. that really got me asking questions like, God, what is this? What am I missing here? Um, and it just makes me wonder, what, what do you think would be – what kind of tipping point does it take for many people – to, to have that to have that change of thought i mean outside of trauma how can we how can we think about this strategically well look that's a great question and again really what it comes down to is pe- how people identify themselves it's how they view themselves as part of the broader world 30 years ago people identified themselves as americans first and the republican or democratic label was just a philosophy of how to make the country work It's why we always rallied together in times of crisis. Now, Republicans view Democrats as the enemy and Democrats view Republicans as the enemy. So we don't really – our American, our national identity is secondary. And when you infuse that with religion or racial identity, which is what the parties are becoming – you have a really intractable situation. It's extremely difficult to get people to acknowledge – um, differences when it affects my my Christianity or my white you know race, uh, and conversely, if it affects my Muslim identity or my 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 black race, right? And that that that's th- those are like two of the most central characteristics of human identity, and they have really become fused with partisanship. The class I teach at USC is called race, class, and partisanship because those are increasingly correlates to one another, right? The Republican Party I grew up in was very critical of identity politics by saying, no, 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 we're all Americans. The more we segregate ourselves by race, the harder it is for e pluribus unum, right, to, for, from many one. It's harder to be a one nation. Well, now the Republican Party is the biggest practitioner of white identity politics in the country, right? They, they, they will say, 
Oh, identity politics. They're the biggest practitioner of identity politics. It's just white identity. So they think it's okay. And that's, that's partly this transition into a multiracial pluralistic society. We have to remember, guys, at this moment in time, the United States of America is undergoing an unprecedented and profound demographic transformation. We are going to become in very short order a non-white European nation will be a plurality of black and brown people. And that scares the living shit out of a lot of white people. It just does. And that's not abnormal biologically. We're literally constituted to seek commonality in our amongst our species for protection. We need tribe. We need community. And that's where we have gone. The problem is, the problem with that thinking is, as America, we, the mythology of America is that anybody can become American if you just buy into the idea that we are all, all of us, by the, by, by, granted by our creator, we are all endowed with certain inalienable rights. Among those, you know, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, equal justice under law, all of this mythology of what America is. But you are not seeing white Americans behaving that way anymore be, when America is becoming less white. Whites now, not all, and I'm certainly not talking all. This is kind of that Joe Biden MAGA republicanism, right? It's not even all Republicans, but it's a lot of them. And what they're basically saying is if America is not a white Christian nation, then it's not America. And it's invaders taking over. And it's the others taking over. And whether it's the Muslims we need to ban or the Mexicans we need to build a wall from or whether it's LGBTQ folks that we need to take away the rights to marry or whatever it is, if it does not meet this white Christian ideal, then it is not America. That is fundamentally what this breaks down to. Now, of course, they will never admit it. They will do everything they can to say that that is not the case, but then they will promote every possible policy solution to make sure that that damn well is the case. And like I said, I'm not saying this as some left-wing observer or some college professor who's been in the ivory tower for 30 years. I'm a freaking Republican political professional who has lived and worked and operated on the inside for 30 damn years. I know what I'm talking about. I know them. <laughs> I know the they's that we're talking about. I know the system. And that's what this has all come down to. And look, 2016 made that undeniable. It made it undeniable. Okay, because you had a president, not through my words, but let's take the Republican Speaker of the House at the time, Paul Ryan, right, who was a former Republican vice presidential nominee, saying Donald Trump is a textbook racist. They all know that it's true. They'll say, oh, how dare you? I can't believe that you're saying that. Anybody who is saying that, you're either too ignorant to understand your racism or you're too ignorant to understand your racism. That's what it comes down to. But that's what it is. It is textbook white identity politics designed to preserve a system that pushes people that don't meet those community standards that you have out. And in that environment, persuading people, Amanda, is extraordinarily difficult. It's why I believe we are in what I call two decades of fire. It's going to be two decades of extremely contentious, oftentimes violent politics. 
because demographically we are transitioning into a new America and we will become a more perfect union, a more diverse union that does have the capacity to finally, finally believe in the ideals of what the founders were saying, even though they were not completely you know, true to those ideals. And that's the idea of a more perfect union. We're never going to get to perfection. We're never going to become the perfect place. We're never going to become the perfect America like this mythological Donald Trump shit that he's trying to sell. That, that's, that's, that's never existed. But what we, can, no, what we right. can do is achieve a more perfect union. And when we talk about it that way, you can bring people that – and again, I'm not saying that it's necessarily because they're smarter, but the data says they've, they're more college-educated. College-educated people are much more comfortable with diversity than non-college-educated people. That's just a fact. And so focusing on the right demographics to persuade rather than trying to persuade people that really don't want to be persuaded is the most efficient way to start winning political arguments and winning campaigns. Yeah, you, that was very well put. And I, I think you're right. It, it, we're comfortable. We're too comfortable. And when you're too comfortable, you don't, you don't want to break outside that barrier of what you know. And that's what we have to get people to That's do. a big, big part of it. Amanda, thank you very much for that question. Carl, you are the next contestant on The Price is Right. Come on up. Unmute that button. Thank you for your patience, buddy. No problem. Although uh, you might have just answered my question. So I'm French-Canadian, actually. I'm in from oh, wow. Canada. Uh, I'm in Arizona okay. right now, ironically. Uh-huh. Uh, also, thank you for all the work you did in 2020. I really thank appreciate you. I mean, what you were saying when you were with the Link yeah. Project. So I think you answered the question with a <laughs> Basically, okay. um, you mentioned the troubles a lot on yeah. Twitter. And I was wondering if you could expand a bit on like why you see so many parallels with it, basically. Yeah, the, the troubles. And again, I talk about the troubles a lot uh, as it relates to Northern Ireland. And, and while I'm no ex... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, while I'm while I'm no expert on you know that time period in Northern Ireland, I have spent a lot of time as it relates to identity, kind of like what I was saying with Amanda. And and when mm-hmm. when you look at the Northern Ireland uh, Northern Ireland situation, uh, it was it was it was it was the conflict between not just Catholics and Protestants, although that was a central part of it, but it was it was it was also a conflict between Irish autonomy, at least as they saw it, and and British rule, and, and geography, and, and history. And human beings have never had a comfortable time transitioning into a different religion, race, or geography. That's just not the way we're constituted as a species. I mean, I come from Montreal, right? We try to separate from yeah. Canada at least once. So, so, so you understand this intuitively. So yeah, this, this is yeah. a big part of it. And, and, and it becomes very contentious oftentimes leading to war. And I, look, I, I, I've been asked a question. I think we talked about this on one of the previous mic drops is, are we in a civil war? Uh, my answer, and I'm very cautious and methodical about this, is I, I think we are. But the war is not like red, you know, it's not going to be a war between blue and gray lining up on border states and firing at one another, like with armies of Californians attacking Montana. Like, that's not what it's going to be. The, the war is going to be political conflict. 
largely between political actors driving this different I- identity of who we are as a nation. And that's what the troubles was about. There was, you know, there was, there, and we're seeing more and more violence. We just had a, you know, a, a governor of Michigan. There, there was a plot to kidnap her, right? We, we are seeing members of Congress shot, right? We are seeing violence break out at local uh, elected uh, schoolhouses. Like these, these are the signs of a society at conflict, at war with itself. And w- like I said, it's not going to be, oh, you joining the army to, for blue, between blue states and red states. That's not what it's going to look like. It's going to be two incompatible visions of what the nation is, what it's going to be, and who we are. And that is exactly where we're at at this moment. And it's going to become extremely difficult to govern. It's going to become extremely difficult to remain united. And in many instances, it will break out into small pockets, hopefully small pockets of violence, of destruction. You saw when, when Trump speaks out against the FBI, suddenly there's a rash of people with guns showing up at FBI headquarters. Uh, you know, Timothy McVeigh in, 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 in the mid nineties blowing up, you know, the, the federal building uh, in, in Oklahoma City. Like, th- th- those are acts of war. And this is very much a, a, a country that is, again, for the first time in its history, I don't think people really appreciate this, but for the first time in its history, transitioning from a white European majority to a non white European majority. And if you don't, if you are not able to extricate yourself and see that a lot of white people, especially those that are blue collar workers that are experiencing economic anxiety, are resisting in a way that defies logic, that defies science, that defies all evidence, and are simply behaving tribally, you're not understanding America in the 2020s. That's going to define this decade. That kind of tension where people will literally not believe their own eyes that the president of the United States is a criminal, that he blackmailed Vladimir Zelensky uh, when he was impeached the first time. They don't want to believe the, the sounds of the audio tape of his voice when he has said horrible things about our soldiers or about our government or about our FBI, our law enforcement. They don't want to believe that he's somehow some – this incredible racist or somebody who's stealing top secrets from the national archive it's like it's not hidden it's not suggested there's literally photos and videos and audio tape the evidence is before your eyes and still tens of millions of people refuse to see that that can only be explained by this need to hold on to identity and the way i see that manifesting itself again is very similar to what happened with the troubles in the 1970s, 60s, and 70s with the Northern Irish. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining. Thanks for being patient. And thanks for asking such a great question, Carl. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Amy. Amy L. Drum, you are on stage. Go ahead and unmute and let me know what's on your mind. Let's see if we can't get you some answers. Little microphone in the lower right-hand corner. Hello, there you you are. Hello, hello. Okay, so thank you for everything you do. I'm excited to be the first time calling for this. uh, Thank you for joining the show, Amy. Uh, I'm so excited. So 
um, one of your guests earlier said, what can we do? And um, I will tell you what I've been doing, and I have very specific questions for okay. you. I live in Indiana, very, very, very mm-hmm. red. Um, listened a few months ago to uh, Lincoln Project um, uh, podcast with uh, Jeff Timmer and Trig mm-hmm. Olson, and they Democracy Index. Um, I'm sure you're aware yeah. of that stuff. They were just looking at which races really needed to be won in 2022 so that we can secure democracy democracy in 2024 so that they can't um, do what they tried to do in 2020. Mm-hmm. So those like Secretary of State in Arizona, uh, many other places. So I, I made a, that whole list. I went through and wrote everything down. And I personally, Indiana, what can I do? Well, you know, not a whole lot. But what I came up with is that I've called a bunch of friends of mine, about 20 people, and I'm trying to focus on those races that are the most important. And I've asked each friend to just donate a couple hours a week to maybe phone bank for some of these candidates that need to win. Um, so as things have evolved, like, for instance, I was thinking about, oh, okay, the Senate race in in Pennsylvania, but it looks like Fetterman's doing pretty good. So I'm I'm not going to focus on that. Um, I have a limited number of people that can help. I'm kind of focusing now on house races. Mm -hmm. I I went to a a Cook Report, and he has a lot of uh, like the you know lean or like toss up Democrat, toss up Republican. Mm Um, he's got like 26 races in the Democrat, but I don't have that many friends, so. I'm wondering if there's some pl- way that I can target those house races a little bit more um, specifically. Um, and then another uh, adjunct question is, as time evolves, uh, something someone brought up earlier are the polls. Which polls are the ones that I should really trust the most as things go along, as I'm targeting these races? Which do you think, which polls do you think would be the most accurate for me to follow? Great question. There's a lot to unpack here. Let me say this first. I I love I love that you're um, being this specific in your efforts. I see all too mm-hmm. often people just kind of giving money to to people on Twitter, running against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Give me five bucks. I mean, that stay away from that. That's just bad, bad, bad use of your time and your money. You, what you're looking at again is Cook Report data saying these are the contestable places. You're saying this is where my, my energy, my efficiency, my volunteer hours, and my dollars will go the furthest. That is absolutely correct. But let me say one other quick thing. Make sure that when you're phone banking, and I love this. Look, back in the day when I was you know on the ground running campaigns, we would organize phone banks, and we would go ask realtors for their offices because that's the place that had the most phones. And so they would leave at 5 o'clock, and all the volunteers would come in, we'd order pizza, and everybody would phone bank together. Now people just kind of phone bank or text from their home, which in some ways is great because we can get more done. It's kind of sad because you lose that camaraderie and that that team-building stuff and and, and that civic engagement working together for your country and, and, and fighting together in politics. Having said that, you need to make absolutely certain that you're working in coordination with phone bankers from those campaigns. Right, and it sounds like that's probably what you're doing. Is that fair to say, Amy, or no? Yeah. What what I'm doing, what I want to do is send. So if someone says yes, I'll I'm happy to volunteer some hours, you know, from now to the election. Then I will send them the link to that person's campaign. Then it's on them to figure out, you know, just to volunteer and say that they're going to phone bank. Right. You know. So yeah, 
Yeah. So I'm just sending them that person's campaign website and they can. I see. I got it. Okay. So yeah, well, that's the way to do it. Again, as long as you're following that script, as long as you're following the directive of the campaign, then you're doing the right thing. Because I, it's not, it wouldn't be fair for me to armchair quarterback and be saying, this is what you should be doing in this house seat or that house seat. Let the campaign tell you. There's very capable, competent people that are trying to help strategically with all of the tens or dozens or hundreds or thousands of volunteers they're getting from all over the country. Like They know how to do that and follow their lead. The real takeaway here for you is what you're already doing, and the message for everybody else here listening in is – Go to the Cook Report, look for those contestable seats, take a look at those districts and where you might want to help out if you want to volunteer and make a difference in this election cycle, and then reach out to that campaign. Trust me, they will find you. You you won't have to look too far to find them. They will connect with you, and they will plug you in to get you to help and trained and working and probably do a little work to make sure you're not you know a bad guy. But once they get you all that stuff, uh, you will be on your way. You report back, and you will be making a difference from even a, a bluest of blue state or reddest of red state, you can be calling into and making a difference with that activity into a targeted contestable race and affecting the outcome um, of elections. Right, right. right. So okay. as for polling, um, it's tough in house seats. And again, I, I'll probably talk about this maybe next week. You're, you're bringing some stuff up. Look, I haven't gotten into, into real contestable house seats. I will. But the challenge with house seats is there's very, very little national polling that comes out, almost none. Most of the polling that comes out are internals from either side. And the problems with internals from either side is they're not designed for public consumption. So the fact that they're being made public is because of some other agenda. And that's dangerous. So I'm going to do my best to kind of ascertain what I know what is going on and talk about some specific races. But it's really, really, really hard to get a real sense of what is happening in a House seat because most of the polling that is going on isn't publicly available polling. So the numbers you're relying on are coming from either the Republicans or the Democrats. They've got a different agenda. They're showing you what they want to show you, not what they are actually seeing. And that becomes really, really difficult. Okay, so would you say, like, in terms of me trying to target ones that really white might be winnable mm-hmm. um, for, uh, for us, that I should just, because uh, I love uh, 538 yep. and I love real clear politics, just go to them kind of regularly to see which ones I should. Exactly. Five point Amy, if you're following 538 and real clear politics, I'm not worried about you. You're making good decisions. <laughs> you can just jump into any one of those races and you're, and you're, you're fighting the good fight. Any one of those races is going to need you. Okay. Okay. That's all. That's you all are I fantastic. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Great questions. And thanks for being involved at that level. It's, it's inspiring. Yeah. Thank okay. you. Thank you. You inspired me to. That was kind of you, Amy. And I hated to cut you off there. I didn't mean to do that. Apologize. Craig, you're next up. What you got for me? Mike, how are you, sir? Doing a good job. Thanks, man. man. Great to hear from you again. What's on your mind this this week? So (laughs) this week, uh, well, just a couple days ago, Katie Hobbs, I'm talking about the great state of Arizona here. Um, Katie Hobbs announced that she would not debate Carrie Lake live on TV, ending, um, you know, a 30-year or so tradition of this. And, uh, you know, she's getting a lot of negative press here in the local media. And I just wondered how, what you thought um, of this decision. And do you ultimately think it will felt, affect the outcome of the election? Look, um, 
I, I love that you're on the ground there, and you're kind of our local local on the ground guy in Arizona, covering the the the, the race here and giving me feedback that I wouldn't ordinarily hear. Um, uh, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to I'm going to kind of say what I said last week a little bit, which is there's they're doing this for a reason. Okay, Arizona's you know, gubernatorial the the Democrats and the Republicans on both sides deploy the best people they have to these contested races. So, so you're not you're not getting people who don't know what they're doing. There's a method to their madness, and I'm not saying it's the right strategy because in every campaign, one team presumably had the right strategy, the other team had the wrong strategy. That's why they got one winner and one loser, right? But what I will say is this: if you're running a governor's race in Arizona on either side, you've got to meet the litmus test, an experience test, a networking test, and competence test from your respective party for many, 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 many years of doing this, this and being, being, you know, battle scarred. It's like, a, it's like a general in a war. You don't send somebody who's just out of the war college. You send somebody who's, who's been in the, in the thick of it for, for a very long time. These seats are just too important and managing these things is extremely difficult. All of that's to say that there's a strategic reason that I would look for the answer as to why, in terms of understanding why they're behaving that way, as opposed to saying, uh, is this good or bad strategy? Now, they may sound like the same question, but they're really not. Let me explain why. My, the, the, the best reason I can think of, of giving Carrie Lake as much leash as possible, is because the more leash that Carrie Lake has, the more she's going to do damage to herself. Okay, This is not a woman who is well-liked. She's got very high negatives. It's a tight race. It's much tighter than it should be. But the more, it's like Donald Trump. The more Donald Trump is the face of the campaign, the worse Republicans do. The more Doug Mastriano is the face of the campaign in Pennsylvania, the worse Republicans are going to do. The more Kerry Lake is the face of the campaigns in Arizona, the worse Republicans are going to do. That's why Biden was calling out these, what he called MAGA Republicans. These are the crazies that he's highlighting that he's saying are dangerous. And these independent voters and even moderate Republicans who are still, there's a small sliver of them that are willing to peel off, they're... They're, they don't need Joe Biden to tell them that these people are, are batshit crazy. They, they know it. They, they, they know it. And they're responding to it. They're reacting to it. It's why the Wall Street Journal has a plus nine position for the Democrats uh, in the last few weeks. The, 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 the Democrats are going to start leaning into this. And sometimes, it's rare, but sometimes when you have a deeply flawed candidate, the best thing to do is to step off the stage and give them a microphone and just let them talk. And that, my strong sense, is what it is that they're doing. You can't hide from a race of this high profile. They're not trying to hide Hobbs. They're trying to let Carrie Lake have as much rope as she can because what they are pulling and showing and finding is that the more that she talks the more she is shrinking her voter base and the more she's alienating independence. So just let her go. Does that make sense, Greg? It makes perfect sense, Mike. Um, 
and I feel a lot more comfortable knowing that she has competent people on her campaign. I really do. Uh, <laughs> um, I do have one more question for you, though. As you know, out here, I and the only reason I um, and what made me think of this question is is the very low amount of polling data that is yeah. available. I literally get called probably two to three times a week for these polls. Yeah, you are getting calls living out here. Oh yeah, all the time. And I never see any of the polls published. So is there a way that I can tell if there's an internal poll or a public opinion? Well, the one is if you don't see it published, it's likely internal, right? But, but here's, but here's the yeah. thing. You have to remember, like, it's not just any one campaign. A lot of times, uh, you can be polled by independent groups. Like, as I mentioned, McConnell, who is not, so I know it wasn't Mitch McConnell. He, he's spending no money in Arizona. But if the Democrats are going in there and they're polling, um, you may get called, even though it's not related to the campaign. And of course, you would never see that polling data uh, made public unless they were trying to um, shop it, as we call it, shop it to some journalist willing to bite at it. Uh, that doesn't really happen anymore. Most journalists don't buy the internal pollings. They won't. They won't do a story on internal polling anymore because the truth is we we gamed them so much that they got tired of getting taken advantage of um yeah but that that's so what, that's probably who you're being called by but you 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 are probably smart enough because you follow this stuff closely enough to figure out whether it's a democrat or a republican or which candidate the poll is is looking to support or oppose and it's usually the candidate that is getting the most negative arguments read on them is is you know who it's against and most of these polls uh correct me if i'm wrong but most of these polls are going to have a pretty large battery of negative arguments because most of the independent money that comes in is going to do the dirty work for the campaign they try most most groups try to to the independent groups with the dark money that you don't really know who it is it's like americans for rainbows and unicorns paid for this ad it's like those are the people that do the hatchet jobs. They do the negative because they're trying to keep the fingers of their candidate clean so that they can just go do the soft, fuzzy bio stuff and say, oh, here's this candidate with you know puppies and clean water and, and, you know, um, and all the right messaging. And then they come in and do, they do the, the, the hard negative that's required to win the race. Understood. And uh, hey, Mike, thank you for your time, sir. I appreciate it as always. And uh, great you show. You bet. Thank you. I look forward to listening. I appreciate you calling in. I'm going to try to be as consistent as I can on the days that um, I do have call uh, call-ins. Um, what I will say is, I don't know what those days are going to be like because things are going to get really hairy for me in the course of the campaign as well. Um, you can see, folks, that the the audience is still really significant. But what we are, uh, nobody else here is in the queue. So if you do have questions, now's the time to kind of jump up. Um, if not, I can talk about uh, a little bit more. I think we've still got some time if you guys want me to keep going. Um, otherwise, we can kind of wrap it up. I still got some voice power left. So I'm happy to, to bring up a couple of other topics if that makes the most sense. But a lot of great questions, a lot of new people here today, a little bit more business. Let me just say, um, um, and Amy, I'll get your question in just a second. Um, again, you're on you're on the Colin app. It is kind of a new um, application. It's designed for greater engagement. When they approached me to do a show and asked me to do a show, I thought this might be perfect since many of you guys have been following me since the Lincoln Project days, and most of you guys have kind of looked for some of these answers to kind of hopefully um, give you some keener understanding and insight into what is happening professionally uh, with the campaigns. 
and maybe bring you a little bit of uh, peace and calm and the ability to sleep. Um, it would be very helpful. Again, such a such a, a, a awesome site to see so many new callers on the phone. If you could be sharing this, uh, the upper right hand corner, that little rectangle um, with the up arrow is the best way to share it. Just uh, punch that out. Let people know that the conversation is happening. It helps build an audience. It helps the algorithm, and most importantly, it helps build our uh, community of mic droppers here to kind of come and ask questions in a in a in a place where they feel that they can get some answers and hopefully share ideas with one another um, as we're all working to kind of build a better uh, better America. So, Amy, I'm going to go ahead and bring you back up onto the stage. Now, go ahead and unmute, and we'll take. Another question from you. By by all means, guys, jump into the queue, back up, and um, and uh, and ask away. There's no questions. By the way, don't feel don't feel bad about asking questions that may have been asked. Um, a lot of times, a reminder and a refresher is really important for people. Um, and and again, we're we're going to be covering a lot of information. I don't want to say over and over and over again, but over and over and over again as we get closer, because I'm going to remind you of what the fundamentals are, especially as everything gets shaky. You guys all remember, right? The closer it gets to the election, the more nervous you get and the more rattled you get. It's really important to stay focused on the fundamentals. That's, I think, the best quality of a campaign manager. It's something I was able to develop at a young age. Um, I think that's why I was, you know, in the in the stretch of the the. Trump-Biden race in 2020, when you guys would watch me on LPTV on the town halls, um, I knew the numbers, I knew the fundamentals, I knew what we were looking at. I think it brought people a sense of calm. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna try and do that same thing again as we get closer. I'm gonna be honest with you about what we're doing, but sticking to the fundamentals and sticking to your game plan is always a hundred times more important than making a quick adjustment because you're getting emotional, because you're getting scared, because you're getting freaked out, or because you're getting worried. You got to stay with the fundamentals. Let the data lead you to where it's going to. And my apologies, Amy. Appreciate your patience while I went on that diatribe. But share with me what questions, what uh, what's on your mind. Okay, so fine for the diatribe. I, um, it occurred to me after I uh, uh, closed off that um, – when I'm focusing on certain races, at, again, I, I'm trying to focus on house races, and I have a limited number of people that I can call on to help me with this. When I'm looking at the polls, and like I said, I, I generally just look at 538 and Real Clear Politics. Those are the two places I go to f- for the goods. Um, mm-hmm. When would you feel comfortable, like if someone is like plus three, plus four, like where do you say, okay – that's going to be, they're going to be okay. Well, and I, like plus one in a house race. I don't feel good about it unless it's like a plus four plus five when you're outside the margin. And the reason why is okay. because you're, you're really not seeing much in terms of the methodology. And you also yeah. don't, re- you also don't know the purpose of the instrument. You have to remember, and I think I've talked about this uh, a little bit. I'm happy to talk about it more uh, at a later date, but when you're creating the instrument, when you're actually writing the poll, writing the poll, um, that's when you're really ascribing the intent and the purpose of what you're trying to get out of it. And that is nine times out of ten, it's not for public consumption, right? You're spending precious resource and campaign dollars to gain a deeper understanding of the fundamentals that I was just talking about, about your race and how to win it. More often than not, the polling that you're seeing that gets to a 538 or to RCP, Real Clear Politics, from house races, especially if they're internals, 
or if, if it's an independent group, you have to be especially cautious because they really have a different agenda. You're, you're not getting a, a, a clean look at the race. You're getting the, the look that they want you to get out of it. Because trust me, if those numbers were bad, they're not going to share it with 538 or Real Clear Politics. No, right? So they're only sharing you with, with you what they want. And so if you're, if you're in a plus three or a minus three position, that's a coin toss. It all comes yeah. down to turnout. You're, you're very comfortable spending your time in those seats because it's going to make a difference. But a plus three, minus three position is a coin toss. Get into that fight if you like a good fight because that one's going to be a, a – you know, a, 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 you can be throwing haymakers on that one, and you're going to get some, some great responses. And you're going to know at the end of an hour or two hours you're making a difference by talking to people. And I guarantee you in 30, 40 days from now they're going to be pissed off because they've gotten 8,000 calls that day. But that's that's part of it. That's also giving you more information on what's yeah. happening on the ground in that race. But anything okay. beyond that, okay. if it's outside are, of a are, plus five, I mean, let it go. Okay. So are there – you already, like we spoke about Trafalgar and Rasmussen, and I have not trusted them for a long time. Are there any very specific ones that you, or you're like, yes, I trust this one? Uh, a lot of them. I mean, I like, I like uh, Quinnipiac. I like Emerson. I like Wall Street Journal. I like, um, boy, I mean, I like the LA Times pool. I like anything backed by NPR Ipsos is good quality stuff. Um, I like, um, boy, yeah, anything, anything that, um, anything that, that Nate Silver is saying is, you know, B or better is, mm-hmm. is, is good stuff. Most of them are. Okay. I mean, you, you're going to know it's bad when it's like Rasmussen and, 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 you know, Trafalgar just putting out crap to put out crap. They're just flooding the zone with shit, right? You're going to know. You, okay. you, you're, observ- you're, you're close enough to know. Um, and like I said, a, a, you could do two identical polls and one is going to have Warnock plus two and the other one will have Walker plus two. They're both correct. They're both they're both within the margin. Yeah. It's just, you 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 can't hit it a hundred percent on the nose. That's what you're looking for with a poll. Is what is the range? What's the movement? What are the demographics? You're not you're not looking for the horse race necessarily. Uh, in fact, you're really not. It's not. It's never going to be an ac- a, a, a completely accurate predictor of the horse race. A poll is used for much different purposes than that. We just often release that part of the poll because it gets coverage, especially when it makes our candidate or a cause or our party look good. Right, right. Okay, okay. That makes sense. So, I got cut off uh, yeah. at the end, but the reason why the reason why I'm so targeted on my approach is because of you, because I've been listening oh, to thank you, you since the beginning of Lincoln Project, and I've learned so much from you. So, thank you. Well, you're so you're obviously awesome. deep into this stuff. Yeah. I mean, you're you're right there on the cusp of yeah. becoming a political professional. I don't know if you ever want to get into it, but if you do, I mean, there's a future. You you know, you know what you're doing, and you're 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 you're, you're doing the work. So. Thank you for everything that you're doing, and thank you for the kind words and the compliments. It means a lot to me. Well, and thank you. I'll keep listening, and I'll probably call in a lot Thanks, more. Thanks, Amy. I'm here for you. All right. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Melissa, back up. It's me again. So I'm going to ask you a question about a California representative race, Valadeo v. Salas. What do you think? Hello? Me, oh, did I, did I lose you? You guys lose me? Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I think I'd be, I, I was the one who got cut off. Can you hear me? 
Oh, yeah, I can okay. hear you. I wanted to know, since we're Californians, what do you think of Valadeo v. Salas? Uh, yeah, Salas. so Cal- this is think? the California 22 race. 22. Yeah, it's in the Central Valley, the Great Central Valley. One of the reasons why I'm very interested in this race is because it's not very different than seats that you've seen in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, where you saw a really marked Hispanic shift right. This is a 50, this is like mm-hmm. a 55% I think by population or what we call CVAP uh citizen voting age population fifth, Latino. This is a Latino rural farming community district. Rudy Salas is a uh popular uh a state assembly member uh from the community. He's been elected a number of times and won his primary to face off against Valadeo Valadeo uh, was just uh, re-elected two years ago and was one of the uh, members of Congress that voted for impeachment. Uh, Republican members that voted for impeachment, but Trump has laid off of him very close with Kevin McCarthy because the seat is right next to his congressional district. They're both from the Great Central Valley. This is rural, okay, and it's very different than most of the competitive seats in the country, which tend to be suburban. Almost all of them are suburban. This one is rural, but it's so overwhelmingly Latino that is making it more competitive for Democrats uh, than otherwise would be the case. In fact, if if Salas is able to win this and Myra Flores loses in Texas, which she probably will, this will be the most rural seat held by a Democrat anywhere in the country, at least one of them. Okay, so sorry for the big windup. Here's the deal with that seat. As, lar- as large mm-hmm. as the Latino population as it is, on paper, it looks far more blue than it has actually voted. There have been times when that has been not been the case. 2018 is the perfect example. 2020 was closer, but remember, as I've said about 2020, you have this discerning voter that voted for Biden. This is a district that Biden won, I believe, and the Republican down ticket, Valadeo, wins. This is a true toss-up in the truest sense of the word. The question is going to be how much Latino turnout affects the race. Uh-oh. This is, is good for Democrats go. in a high turnout seat because um, I, I think it's advantage Democrats because if they get the high turnout in the Latino community that they are expecting, that will break decidedly towards the Dems. And I think that this election cycle, at least in that district, is sizing up to look a lot more like 2018 when Democrats won it, then 2020 when there was a split, or 2016 when there was really low Hispanic turnout. So I would, I would put my money at this point on Salas beating Valadeo. But again, long way to go. It's really more, really right. more of a coin toss. But I, I think of all the seats that could come into play for the Democrats, this one has the best demographic advantage. Well, he's really, uh, Rudy Salas is really liked yeah. in California, in that region. Um, I work remotely. I'm temporarily, I have to go back to L.A., but I'm temporarily in Bakersfield, and he is my representative. Okay. And he is really, really liked, even by Republicans. He's just a really nice guy, very helpful to constituents, Um I'm, I'm hoping that he that he uh, packs his bags and goes to Washington because he's just one of those people that you actually see and talk to. Um, my previous representative was Schiff. 
maybe I saw them three times. (laughs) But these are smaller areas, and so you have more connection to the person who represents you. And so, um, you know, listen, I used where my apartment is is I'm represented by Shift. And now I'm temporarily in Bakersfield. I'm represented by McCarthy. Let me tell you, what a wake-up call this is. Being with somebody, voting for somebody in the state of California, or having somebody represent you that you didn't vote for. Never happened to me in my life. Yeah, it's um, it's it's unique. It sounds like you're getting around quite a bit and meeting a bunch of these these actors. Rudy is is a good man. I've I've known him um, as his time in Sacramento as a representative up here. Good guy, very uh-huh. good campaigner. I think it's going to be a very, very competitive race. Um, and I appreciate you, you know, asking the question and, and hopping Thank up you. on stage. Um, you. Yeah, Thank you bet. You. Um, one other quick thing, and Craig, I'm going to get to you in just a second. Um, inside polling, if you guys are not following inside polling on Twitter, you should be. Um, inside polling, I think, is, is uh, either in the audience or has been in the audience earlier mentioned that this week is going to be a particularly busy week for polling. And a lot of national polls are going to be coming out. Let me, uh-huh. let me tell uh-huh. you what you should all be looking for. You should be looking for that independent movement again and to see whether this lean that Joe Biden is taking into this MAGA Republican messaging is actually working. Um, that's, that's the key demographic. Remember, Democrats are looking for this independent break and they're looking for a solidification of their lower propensity, uh, women voters coming home, younger voters coming home. But this overemphasis on, I shouldn't say overemphasis, this very strong emphasis by Biden on the MAGA Republican term is something that they clearly have a lot of confidence in. And we're going to start to see in the polling whether that is proving out uh, with independence and to see what if that moves either the generic ballot or, again, most importantly, for those A students in the front row taking notes, if it's moving negatives up for Republicans and moving independence away from Republicans more than towards the Democrats. All right. From your mouth to God's ears. All right. Ears. Thanks, Melissa. I really appreciate you calling in. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Craig, back up. Mike, how are you? Uh, one more question. For yeah, you, what sir. you got? So, in your day when you ran campaigns, I got just uh, who do you who did you really dislike going up against? Like, you know, was it David Axelrod um, when he ran Obama's campaign? Was, who was your toughest adversary? I guess I, I just kind of like to know. Uh, I never ran a race against Axe, but what I will say about Axelrod is this: um, the thing that scared me about Axelrod was that he was not a political consultant by training, but he was able to take a candidate from from being basically a state senator all the way to the White House in short order. And what that told me is he had his finger on the pulse of something. He obviously had a very great candidate in Obama, uh, but he didn't view himself really as a political consultant. Axe, you, you'll remember, was a journalist. That's how they met. And there are a few people that have made that um, transition professionally into the political consulting role and the political consulting profession, and Axe is one of those. The people that I admire the most, um, I, li- I like uh, on the Democratic side, the Democrats I like the most are, are Carville because Carville's, Carville's a fighter. Carville's a knife fighter. He, he's somebody who is not looking for nuance. 
He's looking to scrap, and that's the way Republicans fight. And the, the funny thing is, is as Republicans, we have always tended to kind of get into, into more, um, more direct um, scrappy conflicts, especially on cultural issues, than Democrats, who tend to be a very, very heady and very, very science and data and poll-driven. Now, look, I, I love numbers. You all know that, right? I, I, as Ron Stessel says, I, I eat numbers for breakfast, and I live and I breathe them and I eat them, and I get buried in them in races. And I think most of you guys saw most of my work on full display during the Lincoln Project when we took out Trump. It's all data, all numbers. That's my rule. That's my sweet spot. That's where I want to be. Give me the ball there, and I want to take that shot every every day of the week. But this is really important. I still believe that politics is more art. Craig, you there? You guys hear me, or I lose you? My back? Yeah, you're back. You were uh, okay. you disappeared there for a little. Uh, sorry, bit. but the last thing I heard you say was politics is more. Yeah, art. politics is more art than science. I'm sorry, the app kicked me out. Uh, politics is always more art than science. I believe that, even as much as we're getting very data driven. Um, I, I'm a big believer that if you follow like data scientists and political data guys, um, even the pundits that I'm a little bit critical of. These guys are wrong more than they're right. Like, I don't know if anybody follows political, you know, data nerds on, um, on, on Twitter. I, I do because I, I think they're fascinating and I can keep up with them and I like them. But if you're doing too much regression analysis and if you're doing uh, too much data, um, I know right away. And I'm like, this, this guy doesn't know what he doesn't understand the art of the campaign. And most of these guys, if you look at these predictions, it was really clear in the Virginia off-cycle races, a lot of these political data guys were just wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And even Nate Silver's been wrong a lot. And that's not to, that's not to say that the, the data's been wrong, but there's a balance between the art and the science of politics. And, and you've got to be more of an artist. And, and, and so, look... Um, Bagala, I've run against Bagala uh, a, a few times, probably one of the best numbers readers. Uh, his polling, the way he approaches a reading a poll is really fascinating. Um, I like, uh, uh, I think the Obama guys are a little bit overblown, <laughs> a little bit overhyped. <laughs> Don't mean to take anything away from them, but you know they had some fundamentals working for them that, that most people would really like. Uh, I used to really like Dowd a lot. I think Dowd was great in his in his time, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Dowd was a little bit critical of of kind of the approach that we took on the Lincoln Project. Um, I think unfairly. Um, I think he looks at races more from a micro targeting sort of you know ten fifteen years ago perspective, which there's value to. The work has become a lot more analytical now than it was back when they were doing amazing work with Bush and. And Carl Rove in, in the in the um, in the ninety in the early two thousands, excuse me. Um, I don't know. Is this helpful? Am I telling you anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and for sure. And uh, well, if you were running for president in twenty twenty four, who is running your campaign? God, that's really a great question. That that's actually the best way to ask the question. Um, God, that's the best. That's that is actually the best way to ask that question. I would say Mike Mike Murphy. I, I'm still a big believer in Murphy. Murphy, you know, got a lot of flack for 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 Jeb's. He did Jeb's, you know, 150 million dollar race that went nowhere. Um, Mike is really creative. I, in a consultant, I want somebody who understands the art 
of the campaign, not just the science. He's really creative. He he and Axelrod do that uh, hacks and flax. I think uh, um, they do a podcast together. Um, I taught with Mike at USC. I'm 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 real impressed with him. As a Republican, I would want I would want Murphy to run my race. As a Democrat, um, I would I would probably still want Carville. Maybe that's a little bit old school. I don't. I'm not too sure that that James really cares much for the analytics. It's kind of like being a baseball guy and watching the sabermetrics guys come in. You know, it's kind of like that stuff's ruining the game, and to a certain extent, it is. Um, but you, you've got to be data driven in, in your decisions. But when you're the manager making the call, there still has to be a gut feel. And and every campaign I have ever done, and every campaign I ever will do, there is a there is a moment. There is a moment about which you have to make a decision. Whoop. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, there, I can hear you. There, yeah. there is always a defining moment upon which the entire campaign hinges. And, and you know when that moment is there. Like you're working for a year and a half, and you don't know what it's going to be, but something will happen in the campaign, and you all know that the decision you make in that moment is going to decide whether or not you win or lose the race. Uh, for us in 2020, it was the decision to pull out of North Carolina and put the money in Georgia uh, because I, I really believed that we were going to, we were going to move the needle in North Carolina. I believe that we could have um, with a different resource allocation, the money wasn't there um, and we were running out of days and, and I decided to pull the plug on, on the mail program uh, uh, or the, the mail program had its, the plug pulled we pulled out the, the remaining ad buy, let North Carolina go, and then rolled the dice on in Georgia. And it was the best decision that we made, but man, it did not feel good at the time. It did not feel good at the time. Um, so I, uh, that's a little bit of a war story there. I don't know if you guys care about the war I love, stories. I love, that's, <laughs> I love the war yeah. stories, actually. They're terrific. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Yeah, you bet, buddy. Thanks again for the question. Took me down memory lane there. Hey, you're yeah. welcome. Catherine, welcome to the show, Catherine. Go ahead and unmute. You can see me. There you are. I can see you. I can hear you. Oh, good. Oh, good. I've been in the queue for like a half an hour. You have? I don't understand. I don't either. I couldn't see you. Yeah. That's why one of my messages says, um, am I invisible? Because I, 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 I did see that in the queue, and then I was like, I couldn't see you up there. So I apologize. You could see yourself, but you couldn't see. I couldn't see you. I was not skipping you. I promise you. <laughs> I thought it was, that's complete rejection no, for a calling. No, 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 no. My apologies. <laughs> no worries. Um, so my question was about the generic ballot, mm -hmm. and I was wondering what's the utility of it if you know the the gerrymandering is 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 so extreme, and then as Mitch McConnell said, the Senate races depend on candidate quality. You know, that's a really great question. Let me answer it this way. Um, when let, let's rewind to the springtime when Biden's sitting at 32, 33, 34, and the Democrats are still within one or two points of the, the generic ballot. Um, the, the value in looking at the generic ballot from as a campaign professional is what it was telling me is that the, the, the top line of how Joe Biden is doing in the wrong track are not good indicators. There's something else I need to be looking at. 
And I think a lot of people didn't know what that was. For me, again, my first answer on everything is, how am I looking at this through a negative partisan lens? And that was really the answer, is people were disassociating it. So it's not that people, again, this is really important. When you guys are looking at the polls and you're following this stuff, look for the negatives. And I hate to say that because you don't want to be looking for negatives, but (laughs) the negatives for the Republicans are far more important than the positives for the Democrats. You got to remember, people are voting against things; they're not voting for things. And if you if you're really geeking out and you're really nerding out and looking at polls, you can look into the actual questionnaires of some of these polls, not just what we call the top lines. The top lines are right direction, wrong track. But if you actually read the polls, a lot of them are available online. You'll find other questions in there that the pollsters are asking to try to find out what is the mood of the electorate. And a lot of times, what they'll ask you is. You know, are you positive or negative about the Republican Party? Are you positive or negative about the Democratic Party? That is a far better metric than who do you plan on, you know, voting for, or or how do you, or, or what are your approvals of Joe Biden on, or what, which party are you leaning towards? Look for the negative. Which party do you like the least? That's far more important to in predicting voter behavior than than anything else. Is that helpful? Gotcha. That makes sense. Was that worth yeah, was that yeah. worth waiting half an hour for? <laughs> Catherine, I'm it sorry. Was. It was completely. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize. Hope that won't happen again. You bet. Thanks. Katie, you're up. Go ahead and unmute. Hey Katie. Hi, thanks. Thanks for taking my call yeah. again. Um, I my question is about some of the lo- um, down ballot state level races, like uh-huh. state houses and um, senates. Is there um, since there is typically less funding in those races and less kind of um, polling and publicity, is there a different kind of methodology that? these state race state level races should be using um because what i'm seeing is the national level kind of maga stuff is kind of infecting these state level races as well um at least in my state of minnesota and i'm i'm wondering if there's a different methodology when you have fewer resources and less publicity on, on your campaign uh, no, that's that's where partisanship and negative partisanship really do does matter there are certainly regional variations that pollsters will take into account. Um, I'm not too sure what some of those might be in your neck of the woods. Jeff Timmer, if you follow Jeff Timmer on, um, on, on Twitter, um, really knows the Great Lakes states extremely well. He's a perfect person to kind of ask if, if there's any polls that he's watching or what he's seeing, and he's pretty responsive about this stuff. Um, but, but the short answer is uh, generally not. And the reason why I can say that is, is a lot of you guys know I just got back from Brazil doing a race down in Brazil. Uh, the methodology remains largely the same there. You know, polling is a, is a science, right? There, there is an arch to it, like I just got done on my long speech saying. And that's really in the crafting of the words, the verbiage to try to, 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 to pull out the answers that you need to get the information that you're really looking for when you're trying to refine your message. But the methodology, the structure of the poll, the sample size, the demographic construct, how many men, how many women, of what age, at what income level, of what educational level, of what race, ethnicity, that all, that all remains the same. Um, you, you know, you, the, the, the demographic and racial construct of a Michigan 
is different than a Georgia, different than a Nevada, different than a Texas. So as long as your sample reflects um, the the universe that you're trying to pull, um, the methodology, you know, the, only that adjusts. The rest, the actual construct of it, remains largely the same. Where that art form comes in to kind of find deeper little nuggets down down ticket usually comes from the language of the poll and the types of questions that you're asking to kind of discern what it is that's happening. Incidentally, that's why I think a lot of national polls miss stuff is because a lot of the times, um, you know, stuff, stuff is hyper local homelessness, for example, is an enormous issue in California. In most places, it's not, not all. I mean, some places it is, but like in California, it's like a number one or number two issue. It's a big play. It's a big issue in a lot of big cities in, in, in America at the moment. But in California, it's like really off the charts. So you wouldn't know that if you were doing a national survey or if you're a DC pollster. Um, and, and so you do have to have some sort of regional input or should to get the most accurate sense of what it is that you're actually testing, what it is that you're putting into the queue, what it is that you're, you're trying to discern from the voters. Um, but beyond the, that, the actual science it remains the same. It's still a scientific sample. Um, are there any good places that go that far into the weeds into very local state elections? Oh, sure. Um, to- yeah, there's tons of re- regional pollsters that do that. That's actually what a good pollster will do is, you know, there, unless you're unless you're surveying a national sample, which a lot of these public facing polls are. If you're hiring somebody that's running, you know, a poll for Congress, you sit down with a pollster. And the people on the ground, the candidate, the, 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 the advisors, you get a sense of the local issues that are driving it so that they can construct the science, the structure behind it. But you're offering a ton of insight into the actual construct of the wording of the poll. Mm-hmm. And that's largely not available to the general. Yeah, we don't. Those, yeah, those we don't of- share most of that data. Uh, in fact, unless something is unless I've got a political agenda and I'm trying to get a reporter to write a story. Uh, and they're they're smart enough to know that now. I mean, 15 years ago, we could do that all day long. We'd give them a little nugget saying, you know, my candidate's up seven points, and they'd run a story on it. And then the opposition candidate would get pissed, and then they'd want to see the whole survey. And I was like, I'm not going to show you the whole survey. And they're like, why would you put me in that position? And, again, these are kind of old war stories. Most journalists, most newspapers won't do that anymore. They got smart to it. They got wise to us. <laughs> Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for you answering. Bet. You bet. Question. Thanks for asking. Peggy, you're up. You're on stage. There you are. Hello. Hello. Hey, how are you? There you are. Hi, hey, are you? Hi everybody. <laughs> uh, so before you, um, you were answering question, but you cut off. Oh. And it was early Uh-oh. in the program, but I, you said a little bit ago that we can re-ask, so I'm going to do that. Um, Peggy, I'm getting an echo. The question I'm, was, Peggy, I'm getting an echo. Is that yours? Can you hear is that, that echo? Yours? Is that yours? Can you hear is that, that echo? Yeah, I don't know what that is. Are you listening to this on something else? Are you listening to this on something else? No. Okay, I hate to do this. Yeah, I hate to do this. Yeah, I hate to do this. But I want you to drop off. You want me to drop off? Come back in. Yeah. Come back in. Okay. Amy? Okay, my No echo there. Third time. Arm. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, people are still listening, so so no. either either people are like making okay. dinner or watching TV in the background, and they're just this is like good white noise, or they're actually interested in what we're doing. So as long as they're there, Peggy, I will get to you, Peggy, in just a second. But Amy, go ahead. What you got? Okay. 
Okay, so looking at Cook, uh, Cook report on house races. So some of them seem a little bit odd. For instance, Mary Peltola in Alaska, mm-hmm. right? So you talked about Sarah Palin is distinctly a bad candidate. Like she lost because people do not like her. So um, I read a little bit recently or today that she reached, uh, Palin reached out to Nick Begich and asked him to drop himself off the race, like leave mm-hmm. the race so that she could have better um, uh, numbers in, in coming up. So, and uh, apparently he said, why don't you drop right. it? <laughs> no. So I'm not going to do that. Thank you. Thankfully, honestly, but that, of course, that puts Mary Patola in a, a better position. So when I'm looking at the Cook report, they say it's a plus eight Republican. Yeah. But but given these this stuff between Palich and and him, that's probably not really accurate, right? If I'm looking at it, that yeah. Way. No, and I, my other question. Go ahead. Well, my other question is, when I look at the, there are things that say, like, California 13 is open, but it's a D plus four. What does it mean, open? What? So nobody's running the Dem- Democratic? Yeah, it's a new seat. Ticket. It's a new seat. It, it, basically, what happened was it was so carved up that there's no incumbent, so the incumbent retired, and there's nobody representing anybody from that district. Oh, crap. So maybe I should focus on those to see who's running. Yeah, right. who, who's running in the D in 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 that seat? That D plus four in California. Okay, so I'll focus. Yeah. on those because it's just a lot, a lot of open. Seats. Yeah, what Cook is telling you is that Alaska is a plus eight state. Alaska is a Republican state. Mm-hmm. The, what's keeping it, it potentially in Democratic hands is Sarah Palin, because she has what she has what we call a floor and a ceiling, and it's the same. Like she's got a hardcore base supporting her, with, but she can't get above that because everybody who knows her doesn't like her beyond that. And it's not that she's it's not that she's a bad candidate. It's just that people don't like her. She could be a great candidate and don't like her, or she could be a poor candidate and people love her. Right? Like those are the real things. Mm-hmm. And it may may sound like a, a, a distinction without a difference, but it really does matter. Palin is so well known in Alaska. She's so well known everywhere, but she's no well known Alaska yeah. that those that are with her are with her, which means yeah. she can't grow her numbers anymore. And that's what Begich is arguing. I know his campaign manager, by the way, and I don't think I don't think he's going oh. anywhere. Because he shouldn't. He's basically like, look, if I leave, these people aren't going to vote for you anyway. Like, they hate you. Like, they hate you. So it doesn't matter. You should leave because if you got out, the chance of of Palin voters coming to Begich is better than Begich supporters going to Palin. That's unique to Sarah Palin. Like, if it was was any other Republican, this race would be over and... And and it would be in Republican hands, but because yeah. she yeah. she can't leave and she can't help herself and she won't get out, she's got a floor and a ceiling that is capping Republican growth. They, she can't get any more votes. It's not going to happen. So it's good to focus on Mary Peltola for my purposes in terms of you know sending people to phone yeah. bank because exactly yeah. okay that's all I want. Okay, okay. Thank, thank you, you. so much. All right, last uh-huh. caller of the evening, Peggy. Patient, I'm losing my voice and we're losing some audience. But I still have an echo. Okay. okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, there? can you hear me? Yes, you can hear me. Is there any no, echo No, you had a speaker on, didn't you? I did. <laughs> but I had one on last week too when we spoke. But anyway. I'm... Yeah, okay. what's up? So thank you, thank you for hanging yeah. in there. 
Um, so before the discussion was around a big if, if the Democrats would pick up the House and the Senate, what would happen within the Republican Party? And you talked about this conflict that they would implode on each other. Am, am I right? I, I think that the conflict comes if the Republicans don't pick up the House. If, right. if, if McConnell is the minority leader in the Senate, and, and let's just say it's Kevin McCarthy, I don't think it will be, but whoever the Republican speaker is going to be, no, that, that will create the civil war. It will probably induce and incite Trump to get in earlier, which I think is good for Joe Biden, by the way. Look, and I, I, yes, I, yes, I, I said this before, it's not the most popular opinion, but politically speaking, if the Democrats keep the House or pick up, you know, pick, pick, get the Senate, if they pick up a couple of seats in the Senate and they lose the House by 10 votes or so small majority to the Republicans, that's the best possible scenario for the Democrats. That is the best possible scenario in terms of reelection. I think if, if the Democrats hold on to the House and the Senate, things could get very dicey for Biden. I think, I think you could start seeing a primary challenge. I believe that. Ah, I see. I see. Yeah. So the, and the reason is, again, it's, it's negative partisanship, right? It's, if, you have an, if, you have an extre- if you've got these extremists in control of the House – Marjorie Taylor Greene is on the Judiciary Committee. Lauren Boebert's in charge of committees. And all these wackadoodles are there. And they bring out Hunter Biden, right? And they put him on the, on, you know, an investigative panel. They, they impeach Merrick Garland and put him on the stand and go over, you know, try to st- shut down the January 6th committee. And then they impeach Joe Biden. And, and they, they do all the song and dance. None of it's going to go anywhere, but it's all performative. You know, what, yes. what, what is that going to tell the American public? Yes. It's, it's reinforcing all of the extremism that they're already concerned about. And that can only help Biden, especially if Trump becomes the nominee. I, see. I, I, I know that's not a popular take. And again, it's not something you want to screw around with democracy, but it's a very real possibility. You know, that, it, it's, what we're talking about is something that is a very it, – it's, it's as likely as it's not. No, for sure. Listen, it is what it is, which is what I so appreciate about you. It's just it is what it is. And, you know, if that that's the strategy, that's that's how it's going to work out. That's what that's it is. what it is. Oi. Thank All right. You, Mike, for hanging Peggy, thanks for joining us, everybody. Thank you so much for joining another episode of Mike Drop. I'm going to go ahead and drop off and kind of drink some warm tea and get my throat back in order. I'm um, heading out to D.C., going to be with my guy, Chuck Rocha, going to do some speaking events. I will be on the road a lot in the next six weeks, but anybody who wants to just send a note, either on topics, suggestions, go ahead and just drop me a note here on Colin. Just say, hey, um, agree, disagree, um, time changes, any suggestions to the show, I'm here for you. I want to do this as much as I can, as much as you guys find value in it. Um, But where you don't, I need to know that too. So um, until next time, thank you all for joining me on Mic Drop. We'll talk to you next week.